Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little Punxsutawney Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're in for six more weeks of winter. Get it's excited. It's happened. It's happened, folks. Guess what? It's happened. During the annual Groundhog Day ceremony this morning, Pennsylvania's most famous rodent predicted six more weeks of winter. It's happening, folks. <sighs> yummy, yummy winter. Six more weeks of it. Sure, it'll be cold. Sure. But uh, worth it. What else can we say? I think I heard on the radio that uh, Phil is right 40% of the time. I thought I heard 80. No, that's in New York. Oh, it's only in New York that he's that accurate? Well, no. That's that w- a different critter. Oh, the weather. Oh, how many critters are there? Well, that's every, not Punxsutawney. That's New York, Tawny. And that was the one the mayor, if you remember, dropped him, and then a few weeks later he died, <laughs> and then they had you know they replaced him. So uh, it's like yeah. a, it's like a, it's a new addition to their the, the replacement rodent. Yeah. I think the one in New York is like surly squirrel or something like that. <laughs> so Punxsutawney is only forty percent accurate. So why do we care? Because he's cute. Wait, I don't. But it's I don't want more winter. Okay, so why do you... I'm done. Why, why do you feel like a rodent would have any sort of prognostication talent are when you, it comes to... No, are you serious? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry, but he is the prognosticator of prognosticators. And, and we have this rodent in what? Is it Pennsylvania? Yeah. Yes. So how is he predicting the country? He's, he's well-traveled. He's the seer of seers. He's the... He's the... He's just the vermin of Vermont. Not in Vermont, though. Hmm. Good point. Yeah. Well, they probably have their own vermin. <laughs> You'll see zoos all over the country looking at whatever qualifies as a groundhog in their zoo. Groundhog Day, one of the greatest shows of all time. Don't you think that, that was a great movie? I, I feel like many times with Trump, we're living in Groundhog Day. Could be. Bang! <laughs> I, don't you think? Like, it just seems like every morning we wake up and there's another story. I, I did read an interesting thing. The last two weekends, Things have kind of flared up on Saturdays, right? You had the Women's March and then had the press conference on a Saturday berating everyone about crowd size. The next week, it was a Saturday that really the whole immigration thing blew yeah, up. Yeah, and And that's when Jared Kushner's out of the White House because it's the Jewish sh- Sabbath, right? Right. He's Maybe out of that's there. It. So the when, grown-ups are out of the room and, and he starts crazy. going crazy. And today, he Donald Trump takes on – And the Jewish Sabbath is what, Friday – into Saturday, Friday night into Saturday, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's when the, the executive order went out like 5 o'clock right, last that's Friday. It. That's it. That's when he tweets too. Yeah. So is Kushner <sighs> just not there to kind of nudge him away from the crazy? Apparently not. All right. And Ivanka needs to stay close too. Which, uh, Trump thunder down under. That's what I'm calling it. The thunder down under. He unleashed apparently, hung up early on the prime minister of Australia. Not good. Not a good thing. You know, we should we should stop that. This so, is Trump's Thunder Down Under theme. Oh, is this the Thunder Down Under theme? Oh, I love it. Sounds like the 70s driving up the Pacific Coast Highway theme. Oh, well. We've got a lot to talk about today. 
Uh, we will be getting into Google uh, and and all the algorithms you hear about in Google's uh, wonderful world. Is it actually do, – do they answer the questions or do they just end up promoting more falsehood? Right. You know? Because you never know. Then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little punk Satani Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're in for six more weeks of winter. Matt. Get excited. Matt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? We've we've already done that part of the show. Pardon? We've done what part? The show intro? Yeah. No, I just did it again. I just did it right there. For the first time? That was the first time. Oh, all right. Well, my mistake then, sorry. What, you thought we had started the show before? I could have sworn we did. Well, let's ask Terry. Have we started the show before? Yes. No, really? Yeah, we did. So that was the hmm. second starting of the show. That was. Good feeling with me. Where were you? I've been right here. Hmm. That's just, that was weird. Huh. That makes it awkward. Well, you know what? Groundhog Day. Two starts, one show. There you go. We ought to move along because I don't want to start it again. I don't know why that happened. Oh, well. Hey, uh, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, anything going on around the world that we need to pay attention to? Thanks, Matt. According to a report in the Washington Post, President Trump had a contentious call with Australian Prime Minister uh, Malcolm Turnbull, in which he blasted him for a refugee agreement between the two countries, allegedly bragging about his electoral win. And 25 minutes into the call, which was ended, intended to be an hour, Trump abruptly ended the conversation, hanging up the phone. Trump also allegedly told Turnbull that among the calls he had with world leaders this day uh, on that day, this was the worst call by far, he said. Oh, Sources close to Turnbull told Sky News Australia that the, uh, the leader, Australian leader hit back when Trump lost his cool. Trump was a bully. And to combat a bully, you need to be a bully. <laughs> yeah. Matt, what do you think about that that concept? Would that work? No. Bully a bully by well, being sure. a bully? And then eventually everyone dies. I thought you completely ignore the bully. You could try that. But when you're Australia, you kind of need the bully to take your 700 refugees. This is from uh, Sky News Australia this morning or yesterday, depending it's on the day. It's confirmed from an Australian end. So senior sources within the government have confirmed this to me over the last couple of hours. And that is that Donald Trump did hang up mid-conversation after 25 minutes. Uh, his tone was described as yelling across the phone uh, towards Malcolm Turnbull. I also understand that uh, the view from Malcolm Turnbull was that... Donald Trump is a bully, and to to confront a bully, you need to bully back. Mm. So, the the point of that, Washington Post said that, so we get the Australian report from sources inside the Australian administration. It's it's all there. 25 minutes is a long phone call, though. Well, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Mm. 
lot to cover, especially when you start yelling at each other. Well, one side yelling. Uh, Turnbull admitted he had spoken candidly and frankly with Trump. I, I, I do stand up for Australia. My job is to defend Australian interests, he said. The whole point was there's an agreement to send 1,200 refugees that are sitting on an island in Australia. Australia has rules. We don't take refugees. Right. So they're on this island. They're kind of stranded. There's been some uh, some agreements back and forth with the Obama administration that they're going to send these refugees to the U.S., and Trump doesn't want to do that at the moment. Mm. And for some reason, and he said Trump allegedly told Turnbull that they could end up exporting the next Boston bombers. We're not going to do that. Wow. He must have just seen Patriots Day. Possibly. Um, in other news, U.S. Senate on Wednesday voted to confirm Rex Tillerson as the next Secretary of State. One of the most contentious Secretary yeah. of State's votes in a long time. 56-43 was the, the vote there. He did um, better than DeVos. Yeah, she's in trouble. We'll get to her later on. But it says the White House National Security Advisor, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, issued a uh, warning Wednesday to the Iranian government in response to its testing of a ballistic missile. He goes, as of today, we are officially putting Iran on notice. Oh, boy. No idea. They didn't say exactly what that meant, but they're on notice. Uh, Delaware Department of Corrections employee is dead after a hostage situation lasting nearly 24 hours at a uh, correctional center there. Delaware Center Police or Delaware State Police breached uh, Building C where the situation was unfolding. Two remaining hostages were uh, recovered there. One of the two hostages, a corrections employee, was found unresponsive and pronounced dead. The other is in the hospital, and they say doing well. The building is now secure. Mm, that, over. They breached. Boy, and it's that over. sounds like the biggest nightmare in the world. When a prison gone bad, gone bad again. Right. It's ugly. And finally, Facebook is dipping its toe into the TV streaming waters. The Wall Street Journal, Journal reports people familiar with the decision told the journal that the social media giant is contemplating challenging a, a space dominated by Netflix, Hulu, and with a TV app for a television set-top boxes like an Apple TV or a mm. Roku. Facebook is also looking to license its own original video content. Really? Yeah, everyone needs their own TV show. No, they don't. We need more TV. Mm, no. <laughs> Facebook, come on. Well, they just uh, incentivized uh, video publishers on Facebook, uh, use Facebook to make longer videos. Right. So instead of the short ones, they want longer videos. So that's what they're, they're feeling. They're pushing more towards the TV length. Videos. Facebook built an incredible network uh, upon the backs of – uh, 360 million pe- billion people, whatever it is. What is the number? It's closing 30, in on 2 billion. 2 billion people. And uh, the people do all the work. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, the people then pay all the money to advertise. Yes. The people then make the videos. Yeah. And then Facebook wants them to make longer videos so Facebook can make more money and charge more money for services. This is all true. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's a wonderful business. It's a great model. <laughs> it's a really good model. You make it and we charge you yeah, for it. Yeah. yeah. But you get to use it. Sure. I mean, with some requirements yeah. and rules and don't Give up use. Yeah. All privacy. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Get to see pictures from your family. Are people going to do that? Yeah. Would you want to go watch it on Facebook or would you want to, would you rather like go to Netflix and. The rising generation mm-hmm. will want to watch it on Facebook. But the rising generation doesn't use Facebook. Apparently they do. Snapchat. They'll tell you they so don't. So they like making their own videos on Snapchat. They'll tell you they don't, but they do. Okay. That's then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb. 
Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little Punxsutawney Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're Matt. in for six more weeks of winter. Matt. Get excited. What, 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 what? You did it again. What was that? Did what? How many times is this going to happen? What? What are you talking about? You just repeated the open again. What? No. It's I look, did the it's, open. It's seven seventeen. Yeah. Why are we playing this music? This is weird. You guys, Terry, you need to produce the show better. Sorry. What do you mean? Well, why are we doing an intro right now? Would well, you you're just, the one that just said it? You so did. you tell us. I didn't play the music. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Yeah. It's like we keep having the same start of the show over and over again. But we're the only ones that notice it. Hmm. To you, it's 7 o'clock. You keep looping. I'm looping. Well, you're loopy. But... Somebody needs to hit the recorder so we don't skip anymore. I mean, we could have a record player, but we don't use record players. Um well, I guess welcome to the show. <laughs> it's kind of strange. Top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you. Today we'll be talking about Google's eagerness to answer questions, even if in their eagerness they may be promoting falsehoods. Whoops. Wrong. Or fake news even. You're wrong. Yeah. Crazy. Because you look, you Google, if you Google, did uh, the Holocaust take place? Hmm. Don't think you're going to get the the Holocaust Museum's take on it. Right. You're opening yourself up right there. Because the Holocaust Museum doesn't probably address if it took place. They're credible. Of course it took place. Yeah, they start from probably the position that, yeah, yeah it happened. It happened. Alternative facts. <laughs> so the only place that you're going to get answers of whether it took place or not might be places that <laughs> use so, alternative facts. With that, that concept, right? Over yeah. the weekend, the... Trump administration with their Holocaust remembrance message they put out yeah. and they didn't mention Jew. Someone yesterday was talking about – so they didn't mention the Jewish people in a Holocaust. They All lives mattered the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just – you know, they're, they they're, they're being progressive in this one moment, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, they all lives mattered, mattered oh, yeah. the Holocaust. Wow. What's happening to this world? Yeah. Now Australia's mad at us. Mexico. Mexico's mad at us. Well, actually, that one's interesting. There, there was a confrontational phone call, allegedly, with Mexico. There's two versions of it. Oh, really? The AP. Well, there's the Spanish version and the well, English version. obviously. But the AP has a version where it's hostile, and CNN has one where it's not so hostile. And it depends on how you'd use punctuation. Well, and <laughs> Oh, really? It's all about <laughs> punctuating. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, you heard that, I mean, CNN... Um, the, oh, that one woman. What is her name? She does the really funny stories on CNN. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She did the story on Donald Trump's tie, and he uses how long it is, and he and how he uses Scotch tape. Yes, yeah, I remember that. So they're exposing Donald because apparently he wears his ties a little longer, a and little? apparently to show, to show, to make it look like he has a less of a belly, like a longer. Is that what it is? Apparently, he's minimizing. Yeah, you're supposed to because your tie is supposed to go to about your belt. How about he closes his coat? Yeah, and he what? wears a little bigger, boxier kind of coat yeah. too to kind of hide the belly, I guess, the pooch. That's what we call it in our family. <laughs> Do a sit up. And uh, no, yeah, okay. I've been doing a lot of those. It does not very good. Um, but 
so, but he also then because the tie doesn't fit the back of the tie when you put it into the little loops, yeah. it doesn't stay because he's got so much long. His tie's too long. Tie tack. So you should get a tie L- tack. Little American they flag. They have little presidential tie clips if yeah. he wanted one. He can just pick one up at the gift shop at the right. But, he just needs to get some custom clip-ons. No, he, but he tapes it. Yeah. He tapes it. So CNN has now exposed that, and I'm pretty sure that means CNN will never be allowed in a press conference again. They actually had a senior advisor on, was it Jake Tapper's show yesterday? So everyone's like, oh, there's a cooling between the White House and CNN. We'll see. You know how easy it would be for him to patch things up with Australia? All he'd have to do is get on the phone and call Paul Hogan. Oh, Crocodile yeah. Dundee, yeah. and just have him be the mediator between the two. It's a great idea. He could put out a video where he eats some Vegemite, but doesn't <laughs> wince in pain from eating Ooh. the Vegemite, and go, "Wow, this is wonderful." If he could do that, and <laughs> pull that off, Vegemite. they would love you. That's a great. You know, point. That stuff is horrible. See, why don't they let us just solve the world's problems? Come on. So far, not so true. Um, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we're getting into Google, and uh, the way they do things may not always lead to accuracy. Stick with us. Interesting uh, guest coming up next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, fake news has made the news in recent months, and Google, along with many other websites, are taking the heat for it. Here to talk with us today a little bit about uh, what creates fake news or where we might be driven to read it uh, is uh, Dr. Thomas Mayer. He is a postdoctoral researcher in sociology at the University of Arizona. His research primarily contributes to our understanding of repression and threat processes, and he is broadly interested in the systems of control. And um, he, we're honored to have you with us today, Dr. Mayer. Thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Talk to us about um, Google. I mean, Google, you've done some really interesting research about uh, when when somebody searches the question, did the Holocaust happen, um, you'd think that Google would just get right in there and be able to hand you the exact facts. Of course it does, and it, or of course it did, and, and just start to enlighten all of our minds, except that's not really the case. Talk about what's going on with Google and their algorithms. Oh, no, it's not. Um, so to offer a little bit of background, Late last year, several news stories noticed that the top organic search for Google that Google gave to the question, did the Holocaust happen, was a neo-Nazi site. Mm. And there were several other neo-Nazi sites on the front page of the results, and people were understandably aghast. And articles for actions ranging from petitioning Google to tweak its algorithm to encouraging people to buy ad space to push the neo-Nazi sites down the results. And... This misses the fundamental part about Google's algorithm, which is that it's built to give you the answer, answers to your quick questions as quickly as possible and as few clicks as possible. And so its design purpose is to answer questions quickly and efficiently. And that really is what makes it susceptible to Holocaust denial and questions like, did the Holocaust happen? Uh, and this is because... Google's search algorithm is designed to give the information that you're looking um, 
it's designed to give you this information quickly, and it uses more than 200 factors to figure out how to prioritize results and give people the information that they're looking for. And the three main signals that it looks at are links to the page, the words or content on the page, and then it uses a thing called the Rank Brain, which is an AI tool that interprets the searches that you're making to find the pages that you're looking for. And so to give an example of how this is supposed to work, if you type in running shoes, uh, it has no idea if you're looking for reviews of running shoes, whether you want to buy a pair, or if you just want to see different kinds of running shoes. Hmm. So the algorithm will give you a range of options, expecting that you'll click on the right answer or you'll or refine your search. And so if you click on Zappos, buy a nice pair of New Balances and end your search, Google considers that a successful interaction. Now, if you take it with something like uh, typing in a question, did the Holocaust happen into Google, it tries to go through the exact same process. It tries to give you the, op- the options to answer your question as quickly as possible. And this is really different from how historians or really most humans would answer such a question. Right. For, for historians and for most people like us, did the Holocaust happen is a really obvious question. Yeah. Of course the Holocaust happened. It's the equivalent of asking, did World War II happen? And as a result, most Holocaust memorial websites, despite being filled with a wealth of information on what, when, why, how, and to whom the Holocaust happened, don't address this question directly. They know it happened, and they go on from there. But the algorithm can't pivot in the same way and can't interpret information in the same way. And so it sees the absence of specific answers given, uh, get absence of specific answers for this specific question as a lack of relevant information. And in this particular instance, and other instances like it, neo-Nazi websites are able to rise to the top of the search results because credible sites don't have specific relevant content on them and Holocaust denier sites are more likely to address this specific question, mm-hmm. which prompts their answers to the top of the page. Is it now? Is it is it a difference between uh, educational use versus kind of a marketing based use? Because it sounds like the 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 skinheads or whatever they want, or the neo Nazis they want, they're marketing. You know, they're trying to get their message out because there's a message in that they're trying to sell. Um, but the 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 rest of the Holocaust, like the museums and 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 these other organizations, they're just trying to state fact, educate. And because it sounds like Google's working, if if they're looking at links, if they're looking at page rankings, if they're looking at volume of content, um, it, it seems like they're not necessarily reading the right thing to educate. And. That's a really good question. Um, part four, on the Google end, yes, Google's, Google's approach and their algorithms built around marketing. Their operational goal is to be your go-to source for information, and that's their marketing tool. And for Holocaust deniers, their, their tool and their approach is this uh, is what Deborah Lipset talks about is just asking questions. 
Right. And, and so this approach of just asking questions is to try and build doubt into the Holocaust, is to try and make it something that is a topic of debate. And so a question like, did the Holocaust happen? At the, at the outset, if you're asking if the Holocaust happened, you already have some doubts about whether or not that exists. And if you're going to Google and typing that in, you already have some doubts on where, where that's happening. Mm. And so for the neo-Nazis and the skinheads, they're, they're, yes, to a degree, they're marketing this doubt about the Holocaust, but the, their framing of it and the questions that they raise, of, raise with it are falling into a gap in the Google algorithm where there's no other expertise that's answering that question specifically. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you were to raise your hand in a history class and ask that question, a historian's going to be able to pivot and answer that question specifically. The algorithm's trying to answer that question as specifically as possible because it doesn't know the difference between shoes and the historical events. Right. Well, it sounds like this could be a problem in a, in a variety of areas, right? Uh, global warming, you know, religious affiliations or groups, um, I mean, anything, any kind of issue, just the framing of the question or not even the, you know, some groups aren't going to even ask the question. It's not a question anymore. It's a fact. Um, is this, so who's, who's responsible to fix this? I mean, I guess Google can fix the algorithm a bit. But are the websites? Or do we need to be more educated in in how we present our information? Does does the Holocaust you know museum need to get out, get more content out there to to address the question? Uh, that's a that's another great question, and I think that there's two answers to this and two ways to think about this. Google's not going to massively change their algorithm in in response to something like this. But for a group like the Holocaust Museum, if they were to take some of their articles, particularly their article on Holocaust denial, and tweak some of the language to specifically respond to denier language, then that's going to move their results up up the search results, and it's going to increase their presence for answering questions such as that. And another part of it is that we as um, academics, as citizens, and as people that are active online, we can also write content that responds to this information and directly responds to this information. And particularly those who have access to things like .edu websites, Google prioritizes those. They value that authority that Mm. in in part with those. And so writing information in response to these and thinking critically about not just how to convince people of your argument, but to respond particularly to counter arguments about Holocaust denial or your other examples of um, global warming and and topics of that nature, that's certainly going to influence the information that shows up in Google's algorithm and shows up in the shows up in the search results. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I read in your article that, I mean, one answer is that the museum could just, you know, pay money for Google ads. So it's always at the top of the search. But yeah, there's got to be a better way than just throwing money at it. And 
um, I, I guess too. But th- this is this gets into some really important information uh, about how we need to to educate our kids and our and everybody about searches. Don't just assume if you ask it, it will be right. Yeah, I mean that's a yeah. big deal, right? I mean, my kids every time there's a question in our house, every kid starts asking Siri to check Google. So we got to we got to yeah. not just inherently trust it. That's absolutely true, and I think to this point, at least, at least up until um, probably over the last six to eight months, there's really been this. Oh well, Google says, and that's a valid authoritative answer. Mm-hmm. And Google, yes, Google will give you the right information if you ask it the right question. But if you're not asking it the right question, or you're you're asking it a loaded question. And so if you think about this in the context of a survey where a survey has real loaded questions that are trying to get very specific answers, if you're asking Google very loaded questions, it's going to give you loaded answers. And we really need to be conscientious as information consumers about what sort of questions we're asking and what sort of answers we're getting back. But also for those who are, who are experts in the field, we need to be mindful of how how to frame answers in the multitude of ways that uh, answer, answers and information can be can be framed and presented. I mean, that really that's an art, really. That's like an art form because, again, I look at a lot of people don't. If the if the thought if the idea isn't isn't in question in your mind, you just make it a statement. You know, it's you're not. Even asking the those questions, but I mean, you need to be creating content, and I guess oh, open to that. Where do people learn to do that? <laughs> uh, I'm still I'm I'm just beginning to start to think through that question of learning through how to ask questions along those lines, and how and I think one place that is useful to look is to look at there's there's been lots of research about surveys and about how information gets presented on surveys and questions get asked on surveys. And I think we, we can be more mindful of the pitfalls that come with the questions that we ask. And as consumers of information, especially if we're asking information on loaded topics, I think it's worthwhile to think critically about the questions that we're asking and maybe even, even to be more specific be less specific about our searches. Mm. So if you take a search like did the Holocaust happen and you just reduce it to Holocaust, it's going to give you quite a bit. The information it's going to give you is going to be quite a bit different and it's going to be quite a bit more diverse than if you're asking something super specific. And so the more detail we ask of Google, the more, the more detail it's going to try and get back to us and the more narrow search it's going to try and get back to us. Yeah, I when I and maybe it's kind of my history in uh in getting a doctorate, but it's kind of the boolean search where I just would write holocaust and um, you know, information and whatever, validity or whatever. And that changes the entire scope of information I get. But you know, the average person isn't searching with ands and, you know, 
all the other tools that are there in a search engine is is this i guess is this just something we probably need to be educating our kids if if it's now if it's not about whether we don't need to give them all the information anymore we just need to teach them how to how to get to the information so maybe the ability to do better searching is something that should be a class in school certainly and and that critical thinking about the information that's being presented and whether the information that's being presented is being presented with a particular angle, those are really critical skills. And they're critical skills in an era where the Internet has provided us with more information that we can take in. And you listen to scholars who are thinking about questions about data literacy and questions about how organizations like PolitiFact and FactChecker and Snopes go through websites, they talk about how they read websites quite a bit differently in terms of reading horizontally and looking at where this, who's, who's, who's the sources are and things of that nature. And, and on, top of talk, on top of teaching the Boolean searches that you're talking about, I think it's absolutely a great idea to start thinking about teaching data literacy as a class and start teaching data literacy is something that students can learn learn to use themselves and learn to acquire information so Mm. that they can acquire good information themselves. Oh, totally. And um, let's do this. Let's take a break and come back and continue the discussion. We're speaking with Dr. Thomas Mayer, and he's walking us through uh, some maybe not so known uh, facts about when your Google searches, and really it's probably any online search, um, the importance of the don't always believe that you're getting the truth just because it's coming out of a search engine, right? Interesting ideas for all of us, I think. Uh, Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and know if it's truth. Stick with us. This is, we'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Can you believe everything that you read uh, coming out of a search engine? I don't think I would. I wouldn't believe it's all true. You know, fake news has been a big story throughout uh, this election cycle. And uh, so joining us, we've asked Dr. Thomas Mayer to join us. He um, he has done a study and some research on Google's uh, top answer to did the Holocaust happen and uh, some of the things he found that came up, uh, pretty scary, quite honestly, because the question, uh, I mean, a really reputable organization wouldn't even have the question, did the Holocaust happen? I mean, that's not where they'd normally start. And yet um, that's exactly where the uh, the organizations, you know, the neo-Nazis, the skinheads, that's where their their websites start. Uh, so we're, we appreciate you being with us, Dr. Thomas Mayer. Thank you again. Uh, thank you again for having me. Um, talk to us about fake news. I mean, because this is this was just one version of fake news, but it it just seems like we're we're going to be getting more and more fake news, and somehow Google and all the other search engines are going to have to figure out a way around the truth and to find the truth. Absolutely, uh, 
And this is really a problem. This is really illuminates a bigger problem with Google and how Google presents information is that if it's presenting information of exactly what you're looking for, if you're looking for fake news, if you're looking for conspiracy theories, it's going to give you answers such along those lines. And so just because so typing in something like flat earth is going to give you a whole bunch of people that believe that the earth is flat. Yeah. And and this is also something where Sandy Hook truthers have taken advantage and the Sandy Hook happened. And it's not like people are writing explaining that it happened and having to walk through that it happened. And so into that gap, if you don't believe that it happened, if you have people searching on Google for that information, your information is going to be, get presented without any sort of criticism or without any sort of pushback whatsoever. And so it really creates a really good environment. And you combine that with things like Reddit, where you can then go and talk to other people that believe these things, and, it, and these ideas can then get ingrained and get established, and they're that much harder to uproot. Mm. Does it, I guess, whose responsibility is it? I mean, this is where it gets complicated, because I, I can see Google saying, look, what do you want us to do? I mean, if people are, if people are already thinking this way, um, if this is where their head is, we can't control that end of it. I, I'm going to go back to my prior answer and say that it's, it's Google's responsibility and it's our responsibility. It's our responsibility as citizens, as scholars, to be vocal about what is true and what is not true, and especially on experts in the field to be writing and to be writing not just to support your argument, but to counter bad arguments and to counter arguments along those lines. But Google has a really, really refined algorithm, a really refined search engine. And Google can tell you if you type if you type into Google wife of Obama's birthday, it's going to give you Michelle Obama's birthday without any sort of hesitancy whatsoever. Mm. Or um, if you type in wife of president's birthday, it's going to give you um, Melina Trump's birthday without any questions. And it's getting increasingly intelligent, and it seems like one way that Google could work on it, work on and refine its search engine is to recognize that it's not just marketing anymore, that it's for education, and that quest and to be able to begin to distinguish between marketing questions where giving all the information about running shoes is useful versus a historical event where recognizing that a question like did the Holocaust happen requires not just answering that question specifically, but treating it and treating it in a broader historical context and providing broader historical context with, with that. And so I, th- I think it's twofold in terms of pr- providing information, in terms of Google addressing its algorithm. And I mean, you could then argue that your point about data literacy and how we need to get better about interpreting information and seeing true information, false information, is something that we can collectively work on as well. Yeah. I mean, it also gets into, um, I mean, I know with my family, my kids, the idea that they could do a search on the White House and it ends up being directed in a top, you know, one of the top 10 areas might be a porn site. 
I mean, yeah. that I guess that too gets into this. Um, and maybe I mean maybe too part of this is knowing the user that's that's managing. I don't know. Maybe it's user pass or user passwords or I don't know protective searches. I don't know where we go with this. Um, is, is there anything we could be doing as as just you know average Joe family members that are trying to protect their family? Um, what can I do? I think one thing that we can do is that when we see somebody sharing bad information that we can point that out because people are more respect receptive to that when it's coming from somebody that they know that they trust that they care about than coming from a stranger or even coming from mainstream media at this point in time. And so I think that we can be much, much more mindful about caring about not our kids as well as each other in terms of the information that we're consuming because you, fake news is, is a problem on the left and the right. And mm-hmm. it's something that we can be, we can be very quick to interpret things that, that work, work for us in ways where it feels true. And so we share it, but Pointing that if we're pointing that out and we're we're working with each other and we're we're being much more open about that information, it it can help with the dissemination of conspiracy theories, but also the dissemination of just bad information. Yeah, I mean, and that really is like like you're saying it's it really is person to person that it might get spread more, and so maybe the stop would be better if it was done by me if I'm the one that's. Uh, if I'm the one stopping my friends or at least trying to say something to my friends about it. And two, I guess if if I had the power to mark the content as fake news, you know, and if I could – if enough people were marking stuff as fake, it would at least put up an indicator to these search engines to – you know, and fa- and Facebook as well. And um, wow, it's really – I guess you're on the cutting edge of it, aren't you? And you, you've got a lot of work to do, Thomas. I mean, I guess that's good for business. It's good for your it's good for your academic uh, pursuits for at least the next twenty to thirty years. It sounds like certainly. Do they um, listen to you? By the way, does Google pay attention to you? Uh, I doubt it. I mean, you but you that's a pretty big stir you made. I mean, that's a big. Nobody wants to be supporting Holocaust deniers. I mean, no major corporation wants to be a you know connected to supporting directly or indirectly a Holocaust no. denier. That, that is certainly true. And I think that that's one of the reasons that you saw such an outcry about it. And I think that that's one of the reasons. And I think that Google's taking questions like this seriously. And, really, and Facebook, I think, is taking questions like this and questions about the spread of face news very seriously because we're increasingly in a world where corporations like that have a really considerable influence on the information that we're provided with and our our everyday lives. And I I hope that I I believe that they're taking it seriously. I hope that they're taking it seriously. But yeah, I, I, I guess time will tell. Yeah, yeah, time will tell. Well, we appreciate you. Thanks again, uh, Dr. Thomas Mayer, um, who, again, is um, 
doing everything he can. He's a postdoctoral researcher in sociology at the University of Arizona, and he's on the cutting edge of this search engine. I mean, all of a sudden, all the great gifts and blessings that uh, these search engines give us to be able to access information. But there is this dark side that we need to know about. And folks, hey, talk to your kids, for heaven's sakes. Let's educate them. Talk to your grandkids, your family. Spread the news that uh, you got to go deeper than just the first or second page of a search. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and be able to find it, for heaven's sakes, on on your search engines. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. It's a crazy world we live in. You, you know, you just think you can type it into Google and there you have it. I mean, Google has created more fights in my family because now my kids are fact-checking me. I feel like Donald Trump with CNN. Constantly being fact-checked. Your kids are all fact-check false. <laughs> yeah. Dad, that's actually not true. That's actually not true. Wrong. But wrong, they say. Uh, luckily, um, uh, Secretary of State Tillerson passed the deal, right? He's in, he's and in. now he's got to go address State Department, where like 900 people have already signed a waiver or signed a. It's a letter of dissent. Yeah, they're right. dissenting. Yeah, can you imagine walking into your deal and your first thing is to go handle 100 people? And or the a tradition thousand is the Secretary of State talks to those people and they figure out what the problem is because those people that signed it are on the ground in specific areas yeah. of the country or the world. And they may have an idea further beyond what you have thought of as you put this law, policy, whatever right. together. Right. And the White House told them if they don't like it, quit. That's what they said in a press conference. Boy. Yeah. They're kind of offending a lot of people. It's – they got to be careful. Eh. I mean you Google them now and it's get, it'll be ugly. Careful what you Google about Trump and his tie. Um, well, okay, what do you do? This is life, folks. Can we make it better? Absolutely. We will um we'll get into that. Happy Groundhog Day. It it's not just it's been groundhog last two weeks. <laughs> we will take a break, friends. We'll be back helping you through Groundhog Day. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little punk Satani Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're in for six more weeks of winter. Get excited. <laughs> in fact, it's happened. It's happened. Punk Satani Phil saw his shadow. <sighs> six more weeks of the cold winter. Yummy, 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 yummy. You got to love it. Life is good. Hey, Matt, what time is it? What time is it? What? Do you know what time it is? 7.06. Hmm. 7.06. Why do you say, hmm? 
Did you forget to set your clock back or forward or something? Well, I don't know. Because it's actually 8. 8.07. Yes. Yeah. No, it's 8.07. That's what I meant. Okay. I just just did the start of the show. That right intro there. sounded awfully familiar is all. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it a lot today. I don't know what it is. I keep doing the intro to the show, and I think it has something to do with Groundhog Day. Hmm. Just keeps happening over and over and over. But we do have a great show. I mean, what do you do on Groundhog Day? You celebrate groundhogs. And six more weeks of the cold winter. And we, as we talked about last hour, apparently Punxsutawney Phil, not such an accurate little rodent. Don't know why he has so much power. Uh, again, I think he needs to look to his New York counterpart. May he rest in peace. The surly squirrel. The surly squirrel that was accidentally dropped by a mayor a few years ago. That's, you know, that could happen to punks. Punks? Punks is his nickname. We got a great show. We'll be talking about the conversations that you should have before you get married. You'd think that before you make the biggest commitment of your life that you'd, you'd talk. One of, the, one of those questions should be, have you seen the film Groundhog Day? Yeah. Because why? Because many in marriage would claim it feels like Groundhog Day over no. and over and over. Is that what you're getting to? No, it's just the perfect film. It is the perfect. And you, it should be a requirement to be a U.S. citizen to watch <laughs> that film. And oh. don't tell that to Trump. Yeah, he'll do it. Because that will be the next Or don't be the order. last person in the room that says that because then he'll do it. I like – Because um, if somebody else says like Caddyshack, then it's Caddyshack. <laughs> <laughs> it's I another really, Bill Murray movie involving a rodent. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of Bill Murray movies with rodents. Um, the, the reality I think of Groundhog Day is it's one of the great movies because it has a, a really important message. That you can learn from life. See, when, when, when the, when the, what's his name? Who was the guy in the, in the movie? Bill Murray's role. He, when he finally started learning, and he, he took it on, and he learned every day, you know, sure, you repeat the day, but you're learning, you're growing, you're changing. Am I right or am I right or am I right? Right, right, right. That's good. Hmm. You learn. And so we'll get into all that fun today, talking about uh, Groundhog Day, the movie. Also, we will talk uh, with Kristen Davis about the conversations to have before you get married. And Caitlin Thomas will join us a little bit later, too, to talk about new things to expect in 2017. Ooh. Plus the empty news we'll get to, the Matt Townsend news. All that fun straight ahead. And uh, minimize the Trump news if we can. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Sorry, Matt. A federal judge in Los Angeles has added another legal ruling against President Trump's controversial uh, suspension of travel from a group of predominantly Muslim countries, issuing an emergency order that forbids government officials from enforcing many of the new rules. I believe that's up to five federal judges now that have passed an order. This might be a reason why they find a little bit... uh, controversial. Play clip four. This is from CNN. The Cato Institute, a conservative think tank, has tallied the number of Americans killed by citizens of the seven countries banned from 1975 uh, to 2015. They are as follows. From Iraq, zero. From Iran, zero. From Syria, zero. From Somalia, zero. From Libya, zero. And from Sudan, 
zero. Oh, boy. There you go. There seems to be a pattern there. By the way, you also just heard a gasp from the other 33 nations that yeah. are Muslim majorities <laughs> that like, oh. where all of those – where the murderers have come from. I've got a little laugh on that yesterday. That's scary. Um, moving on, Wednesday morning, uh, President Trump said he would be fine with the Senate changing its rules to pass his Supreme Court nominee with just 50 votes as opposed to the necessary 60 votes required. He says, yes, if you can, Mitch, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, go nuclear, which is what they call that. Yeah. Yeah. Just – but Mitch doesn't want to do that. Just slow down, Mitch. Take a deep breath. We'll figure this out. Betsy DeVos, President Trump's nominee for Education Secretary, one Republican vote away from not being confirmed. Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska announced on the floor Wednesday that they will oppose DeVos's nomination in the final Senate vote after voting in the uh, affirmative to advance her out of committee. In the meantime, the, uh, the uncertainty over DeVos's nomination will likely stall the confirmation process for Senator Jeff Sessions, Trump's nominee for Attorney General. Sessions cast his vote on DeVos. Republican until he casts his vote on DeVos, Republicans are unlikely to vote him as attorney general because that would take his vote off the table because he wouldn't be a senator <laughs> anymore. Right. So they're waiting for Senator Sessions to make his votes. So then they can make him attorney general. Oh, Sessions. wow. This is crazy. Yeah. Little behind it, the scenes thing. A there. lot of vote. Wrangling. Key Republican lawmakers are shifting their goal on Obamacare from repealing and replacing the law to the more modest goal of repairing it. It is a striking change in rhetoric that, that speaks to the complexities the Republicans face in getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. Many of the law's provisions are popular. Some of the parts of the law that the GOP do want to repeal could have negative repercussions on the parts uh, seen as working. So you take away yeah. the bad parts, the good parts wouldn't work as well. So no longer replace and repeal, just repair. Repair. Uh, next week it will be, let's just review it. Uh, I'm trying to be accurate on this. That there are some things and there's provisions in the laws that will probably stay or we may modify them, but we're going to fix things. We're going to repair things. This is from House Energy and Commerce Committee Chairman Greg Walden from Oregon, a Republican mm. there. So it's a different uh, stance than we've heard before. Yeah. And finally, a Florida businessman who faked his own death to defraud insurance companies has been sentenced to 14 years in prison. 63-year-old Jesse Lantuiga was sentenced Wednesday in Jacksonville after he pled guilty to bank fraud, identity theft, and other charges. The former owner of the furniture business, he and his wife told people that he had what – dis- what disease would you have to, to fake your death, Matt? What would you use? If I, if I were going to use any disease any to disease. fake my death, yes. um, ah, boy, I would probably use the plague. The plague. Just, it's so – Dark. Okay. Yeah, the plague. Interesting. He chose mad cow disease, <laughs> and then he, he, they said he was traveling to Venezuela for an alternative treatment. Really? Yeah. According to his plea agreement, he went there to obtain fake death certificates. He was arrested last year in North Carolina while applying for a passport in another man's name. So mad cow disease is what he chose. By the way, shouldn't he have gone to India Yeah. where yeah. the cow is sacred? Yeah. Maybe yeah. that would have been a better story. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. But soon. I haven't thought of faking my death, but you brought up a really great point. Yeah. And if Venezuela is added to the list, they may retaliate and then Mm -hmm. we can't go down there for fake death certificates anymore. So look what he's. I mean, this could be a whole thing. It's so hard to get a fake death certificate today. (laughs) Where does one go to get their fake death certificate? Um, Man, that's uh, that's kind of that's a that's a long road. It's you know, at some point we just need to learn to deal with our lives. Yes. This seemed like a lot of effort to fake a death to get some insurance money.
Mm-hmm. Unless it was a lot, I guess. If it was a great deal of money, what would you do? Yeah, what do you do? Mm. Hey, uh, by the way, today it's not just um, it's not just Groundhog Day. It is also Play Your Ukulele Day. Mm. By the way, you just, like you like you some uke. I, I, I me gusta the uke. I really like ukulele, and we my kids play the uke, mm. and they even call it the uke. Like, hey, uke me some uke. These are phrases we use. Oh, nice. In there, they're very hip. Towns and family lingo. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's because of Moana yeah. and uh, Israel. Kamea Kamaka. Didn't he die? Yeah, he did. But oh. he's he and Don Ho. <laughs> these are like some of my favorite yukis. Don who? Ukuleleists. Don Ho. Oh. Tiny, tiny bubbles. Tiny bubbles. Sure. That is the tiny Tim. No, that's a different thing. He um, played the ukulele. He passed. Tiny Tim did? Yeah. A while ago. The Tiny Tim? Yes. Oh. I'm I'm thinking of... I'm thinking of Dickens. Oh, yeah. I'm thinking Dickens, Tiny Tim. What's going on? Somebody let the dog out. Or stepped on it, whichever. (laughs) Stepped on the dog. Hey, police are hunting a, a man in a biohazard suit. Ooh. He's a burglar who struck in Queens. Police in New York City are asking for the public's help in apprehending a burglar who wore a white biohazard suit to conceal his identity when he stole a safe containing $200,000 from a home in Queens. Surveillance video shows the burglar pull a Mercedes-Benz station wagon into the driveway. Boy, this is some thief. Yeah. Police say the man exited his vehicle, entered the home through an unlocked back door, made off with the safe, which contained valuable jewelry. In addition to the cash, Hmm. investigators have not said whether the home was targeted or, you know, did they did the guy need the suit in the home other than to disguise himself? Was there other biohazards in the home? Right. You know, I would have stolen something else. I think that crook was just playing it safe. Boy. Our crowd today is angry. Yeah, they didn't like that joke. Sheesh. No idea why. You, you'd think they'd find a, a more convenient disguise than a biohazard suit. Well, we have a one of our great uh, vendors that supports our show. Um, there's many things you can dress up as, right? The crook closet? The crook Are you talking closet. about the crook yeah. closet? Yeah. You... You don't need a biohazard suit. I mean, that's just a lot. That's like that's like a bridge too far. Yeah, I mean, they're just not sold down at the local department store. Yeah. You know, stealing a safe, that's just not going to crack it. Okay, oh! hmm. Jeff, are you not listening to the crowd? They don't like those jokes. Well, you have to just throw it all out there until something sticks. Hmm. Okay. That's know. how it works. I was trying to think if that had anything to do with the safe. Yeah, I was waiting for some sort of joke and maybe yeah. some more booze. But. but apparently the crowd, well, no, the crowd got that that wasn't even funny. Yeah. They didn't boo it or laugh. They were in deep thought. <laughs> or confused. <laughs> yeah, they were. Hey, uh, instead of breaking into a house, these uh, these criminals broke the house. Um, no problem, right? Think about it. Do you do you do you just pick the locks? Do you bust a window? Yeah. Uh, this well, is some problem solving here. You know, there's, it's hard. It's hard to be a thief today. Um, in fact, these guys in Germany, they just decided to bring a tractor and break the wall down. Just knock part of the house down, right? Why worry about the door? 
That's what the thief of a group of thieves, the head thief, the chief thief, did in northwest Germany Thursday morning. The suspects left the tractor halfway inside the house. They just rammed it in there. And in exchange, they removed a safe from the house. Another safe. That's two safes in one show, folks. Police won't say what was in the safe. The home residents weren't uh, harmed in the uh, in the robbery. Wait, so were they caught? Or was he caught? The thieves? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Oh, so he must be a protractor. <laughs> you're still doing it. You're They're going to laugh. You're just going to keep doing it. Yeah, they'll laugh. Who will? The audience. Our crowd, you mean? Yeah. They're not laughing. They're about to hang you up. Hmm. I heard one of them say, get a rope. I don't know what that means. <laughs> that turned violent. Don't make, don't make any more safe jokes or don't make any more. Just play it straight. Okay, I'm going to give you another one. Okay. Don't. Be care- I mean, I'm telling you, be careful. They're mad. All right. Out of Hapeville, Georgia, Hapeville police are trying to locate a teen who stole two high-performance Porsche, uh, Porsche SUVs as they were being delivered at the Porsche North American headquarters. Boy, that's a smart kid. That's the car you steal right there. Detectives released surveillance video from a camera mounted on the dashboard of the delivery truck. The video shows the teen driving off in a black Porsche Cayenne valued at more than $120,000. The teen and an accomplice uh, made a U-turn, and they came back to steal a second SUV, a Porsche, I think a a Mekon? I haven't heard of that one. Uh, which was estimated at ninety thousand dollars. With two days, within two days, police located the stolen SUVs at two separate locations in Atlanta. They say the teen later posted cell phone video of himself driving one of the stolen SUVs on Instagram. He was also boasting on social media that everyone else was stealing Fords and he got a Porsche. Braggard. Braggard. Would you steal a Porsche or a Ford? Hmm. You're not talking, are you? Well, I want to be careful. I want to choose my words just right. Do you have a comment on the Porsche? The great lesson I learned about the Porsche, by the way. You park your car, your Porsche under a Porsche. So the way you're supposed to say the word Porsche, it's a Porsche. It's not a Porsche. You know, they have that car in Russia. Do you know what it's called? What? A Borsch. Okay. See, that one they liked. Yeah, they did. No accounting for taste. That was good. Jeffrey, we will take a break. We got to get a break. Give him a break. Again, the empty news, the information from the Matt Townsend show, some of it you need to know, some of it you don't, and uh, some you just makes you feel better because you're not them. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about the conversations you got to have before you get married. It's not all about love fest and love potions. At some point, you got to talk. We'll give you the topics ahead. This is the Matt Townsend show, helping you live longer and love stronger. Stick with us.
In today's world, one of the main reasons people are seeking out therapy is because of problems in their relationships, their marriage. Marriage can be hard. It can be complicated. And with today's statistics showing that 40% of couples who get married end up divorced, it's hard sometimes to have hope. So joining us today is Kristen Davis, a marriage therapist who is here to give us some advice on things we can do and conversations we should have before we get married to help ease some of these, uh, these problems later in our married life. We appreciate you being with us, Kristen. Thanks for your time. Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks for asking me to come on your show. I uh, definitely appreciate the opportunity to, to discuss some of these issues. You bet. I mean, it's there's something about, you know, when you're in love, you don't you don't ever think that you could have problems. But the reality <laughs> is, yeah, yeah. When you're like in that first stage of yearning or romantic love, that's easy. It gets harder when you have to earn the love and, and actually manage your differences. That's correct. And I think that a lot of couples in the beginning, they do uh, have a tendency to romanticize things and feel that um, they have enough conversation to to warrant some, some discussion about some of the things. But my experience has taught me that the as, as time elapses and more time people put into the relationship, uh, many subjects uh, still come up and topics still come up, but they're not really fully addressed until something uh, happens, and then it, it brings couples to a point that they need to uh, have have a deeper conversation, yet they don't really know how to go about doing that. It's so true. Is And, I mean, a lot of couples, they, uh, they don't even – it's almost like – and maybe it's just the romantic kind of love that's taken over. They I, – I try to coach people and teach people skills, um, you know, pre-marriage counseling kind of stuff, and – I've recognized that many times they look at you like you're just like, what are you talking about? We're not going to fight. We're not going to argue. And yeah. you, it's almost like the deer in the headlights, the doe-eyed deer, and you just sit there and think, okay. If I, and I've noticed if I bring up topics – and you tell me what you've seen in your experience. If you bring these up – because you're going to suggest some conversations we ought to be having, um, but they they really need to be – very real in the conversation, right? Because they're they're talking about future kids, future jobs, future issues, but they're also talking about them before they're even into them. Can they really fully prepare, even through well, conversation? I, right. I think that to to some degree they they can. But to your point, I think that they um, – have these these conversations, but the the impact of it, there's going to be differences, doesn't really take hold until something challenging comes up. And right. so there, there, there are going to be, you know, there are going to be issues, um, topics in, in relationships that are really going to be almost no-brainers, right? They're really going to get along and, and, and they can resolve the differences, you know, over a cup of coffee or something along those lines. But you know, there are, I'm sure you have found working with couples that there are key areas that become more contentious that overall um, tend to affect a majority of the couples. Yeah. And, and, and so working with couples, I have found that a very basic thing for, for couples to be able to create, which is, is somewhat difficult, especially during challenging times, is to really have a foundation of trust and safety. And, you know, do you have my back? Can I count on you? Can I really share with you how I'm feeling about something? Because some of these topics that I discussed, going back to the blog and why you reached out to me, are um, very difficult and uh, to, to talk about. And they bring up a lot of 
mixed emotions, right? Yeah. When we're talking about money or sex or um, you know, how they're going to communicate with one another. And so those types of issues really rise to the top. Um, and uh, so creating like a foundation of, of, say, trust and safety in that relationship, I think, is is, is, is a bedrock. Oh, yeah. And really key. And kind of fundamental, I think, to what you're suggesting is the idea that we have to talk, right? So I'm kind of a – I'm more of a um, social psychologist and believe that we, it's, it's through our interaction that we create our meaning. And, right. and I'm a big believer that it, a lot of people don't necessarily know how they're going to handle and, – and I think you bring it up later in the article um, – they're, they're, they don't know how they're going to handle their conflict. And we tend to have a philosophy or a tendency to be a pursuer or kind of a withdrawer, um, according to Gottman and others. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I um, I think that, that this conver- this idea of having these conversations up front, it, it teaches us is if we can master anything in the first five years of our marriage, let's focus – and pre-marriage even – let's focus on learning to handle conflict. And so let's just start now making everyone safe and trusting in a conversation um, and practice it now. And then hopefully if we practice it enough and do this over and over and over again, you know, by the year three or four, maybe we really will be good at conflict when it really hits. Right. And I think that, you know, many couples, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Um, you know, they, they think that conflict is bad. Now, right. I think that, you know, conflict is inherent in some of, uh, in all the healthiest relationships, and I think that they, um, they, they really need to conceptualize that differently. That doesn't mean that you're going to be, um, you know, uh, over- overly in that person's face. It's really about, you know, we're going to have these differences, especially as couples move through the power struggle stage of a relationship after they've, you know, gone through the, the romantic part. And, and, how are each of those, how is each individual going to bring their own style to resolve to some degree, whatever that might mean, those, those differences? And to your point, you know, whether we're a distance or a withdrawal pursuer, you know, we learn a lot of that in our family of origin, right? Our first family. Right. And so we're going to bring that into the relationship. When working with couples, I'm always interested in why is this topic easier for you to discuss than, say, another one? Hmm. Like, what types of skills are you using, talking about whatever that might be, that is a strength of yours? And the other part of communication is um, what are really some of your triggers when you start talking about something? And so I think that the communication style, whether you're, like you talked about, distance or pursuer, is also... Uh, your style, right? Do yeah. you, or what kind of things kind of get your blood boiling, or and and trying to and, and really working on identifying some of those things so that you can start to maneuver them, right, and 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 drive them into like a different path, into a different direction, yeah. So that they can learn something that's more benefit, and then like you said move with them, you know, as they move, traverse through, you know, year two, year three, year four. Because when you have that really strong foundation, you can pretty much throw in a lot of things, right? You can talk about all different types of things if you have a good foundation of how you're going to communicate with one another. And those principles are the same, right? I mean, how I handle my principle, how I handle my conversation over marital intimacy in our first year 
will be I can use those same principles and safety and make it a trusting environment and um, I can use that in the third, the eighth, the twentieth. I can also right. use it to deal with my aging mother, and uh, the more time I'm spending with my mother, that might create conflict in my thirtieth year. And right. I mean, so I, I guess what's powerful is, um, and one of the reasons why your advice to start with conversations, um, it gets you in the skills, it gets you practicing it. You also, that's a really important point you made earlier that. Um, Start with start with where you do it well. So if you can yeah. if you can talk about we'll, we'll give you eight subjects that you bring up, but if maybe four of them not aren't even a problem for you to talk about, but go in and figure out why. What do you do right. really well there, and use right. those principles on the other ones. Right, because I think that you know, like when, when couples come in, and we're working with couples, they're so focused on. The problem, like we have all these problems, and and we can't resolve these issues, or we have a hard time, and and we and we know that it's important to value the strength of that relationship, and so they get to shift. It's an opportunity to shift how they're thinking about the relationship. Well, I didn't really think about that. Yeah, you know, we can talk about fill in the blank A, B, C, or D with ease, and and why? Why why are those topics easier? And it almost gives them an opportunity to to look at the relationship a little bit differently and not feel as though the issues or the, the problems that they have are so magnanimous, right? And so you, you, you want to compliment, right, uh, on, on the positivity and the strength that they bring, that they bring to that, to that relationship, which will help them to, you know, manage the other conflict. And, you know, going back to your comment, your, your reference to Gottman, of course, you know, he's the Google of every, you know, all yeah. that, um, you know, Working with couples, it's teaching them really basic things such as a soft startup that Gottman talks about. You know, it's a good time to talk. If not, when might be a good time to talk? Um, instead of trying to resolve it while you're in the middle of a fight, you know, backpedal. Go back the next day and say, let's, let's reboot. Let's try this again when, when, we're in a, when we're in a better headspace. If you're not in a good headspace, if you're coming home from work and, you know, you're really tired or something, that's not really the time to have an intense conversation, yet some people just kind of pounce on that, right? They just start yeah. talking because it's a good time for them, right? Yeah. And, and it's not always a good time for their partner, so trying to be respectful, thus, that creates a foundation of safety. Hey, she or he gets me. They understand. Like, I can I can talk about it in a couple hours, but not right now. And, and there, there's importance in that. That's so true. Um, yeah. And again, it's uh, it's it's about there's certain topics. Uh, so communication is kind of the, the problem we might have, the process we need to learn, the skill. Uh-huh. But then it's the topical issues that come up. Let's get into one of them um, and then we'll take a break. The first one that you say we really ought to make sure we're talking about is uh, money. Yeah. Now, now get into why. What is – I mean money – it's the root of all evil. I don't know if you've heard that, sure. Kristen. <laughs> um, it's it's pretty ugly at times, but it's yeah. especially when you're young and you're you know you're trying to make it work. But what are the questions we should be asking about money and why? Well, you know, statistically, we can we can we all know not we all know, but there's plenty of research out there that it's a leading cause of divorce. So, ergo, there there's there's a reason even more so to have a conversation about money. So, with money. My experience has taught me that it really goes back to going back to your first family and some of the important questions you should be asking 
I mean, look, are you a spender or a saver? It doesn't really get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is, the root of the issue is, what is your relationship with money? How do you view money? Did you have money growing up? Were you poor? Were you well off? Were you middle class? Did you, did your parents live on credit card debt? Do you have a lot of debt? Uh, did you save? Um, and, and how did your parents view money? And we, we learned a lot of those things in, in our, in our first family. And so, uh, you're going to bring a lot of those core beliefs about money, whether you recognize it or not initially, at least, into your, into this relationship. And then alongside of that, they, you know, you grew up with not a lot of money or, and, and so there's a shame factor and, geez, I have a lot of credit card debt. I didn't really know how to manage my money. I, my, my parents didn't teach me how to open up a checking account. And so I kind of have all this debt now. And, 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 and that it, it's very shameful for people when they have to, be transparent about their money mm. and creating, you know, that kind of conversation about the relationship with money. Many times I've asked this question and, you know, going back to what I said earlier, it's like that deer in the headlight look, like, what, what do you mean? Well, what is, how do you feel about money? I mean, what if you have disposable income and what, what are you going to do with that money? Do you want to share your money? Mm. Um, and I think that some of those are the more fundamental foundational questions that are really important because then they can often segue into um, budgeting and how you're going to, are you a spender or a saver and how do you feel about your partner or spouse spending money on whatever it's going to be. Oh, um, cause you, and, you can just, you can just smell the problem coming. Oh, <laughs> like, cause yeah. it, cause again, if, if all of a sudden your identity, your power, your security is in the form of money and you're married to a spender that just keeps spending it like crazy. Yeah. Um, you're rocking your partner's foundation. Right. And, and, then, and then we fight about money like money's the issue. Right. But it's but, really, but, but, it's but not. It really isn't. No. Because you go back to, I can't trust you that you're going to have our best interest at heart. I, I will give you an example. I've come yeah. across many couples that long term, they have similar values. Yes, I want a 401k. Yes, I want a safer retirement. Yes, I want to be able to do these things. And that's wonderful. And they think and believe they're on the, they're on the same page. But in that degree, they are. But the truth is, how they get there is more important. So if they have this goal of, I want to retire and I want a 401k, well, that's wonderful. But what are the baby steps? What are the, what's the short-term game, game? to get to the long-term game. Mm. And I have found that that becomes a discrepancy, that that becomes an argument because now you have someone who's spending. Well, how is that helping us long-term? Well, you know, I want this and I want that. Well, but, but we have to save because we don't have a lot of money. So they may have long-term goals that are in sync, but how they achieve those goals are not necessarily in sync. Right. And yeah. what's great about your point of all of this is this could be understood before you get married. Oh, sure. And and if it's not, it's going to be understood after you get yeah. married. Before you get married, there are some changes you could go through. There are – you could decide not to get married, but you could also decide to – you know, to maybe negotiate better or talk about things, take some other classes about money that, that could preempt or could could better prepare you. 
uh, great uh, great insight. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Kristen Davin, Dr. Kristen Davin. Um, if you go to her website, kristendavin.com, and she's talking to us about the eight conversations you must have before you get married, according to a marriage therapist. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger and lead healthier lives. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Today we're talking about uh, your marriage. And as you're about to get married, there's certain things you ought to be talking about, right? Certain questions we could go through that would help you at least get in the same ballpark with each other, which down the road could prevent other issues. Joining us is Dr. Kristen Davin. Um, she is a, she's a counselor, a psychologist and, from New York and is, is walking us through um, an article she wrote that we, we just went through. One thing you really ought to talk about is money because it's not just the source of all evil or the root of all evil. It really is. The, it's the root of all a lot of people's confidence, security, right, power structure. Um, another topic she says we, we really need to make sure we focus on is sex. Uh, Kristen, t- thanks for being yes. with us. And oh, again, you. if I think about the things the couples I work with struggle with, money is usually number one and sex is usually number two. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Hands down, right? Yeah. Talk yeah. about why. What is it? Because, I mean, sex, it seems like when you're in love and you're young in the marriage, it's it's so it's easy. It's great. But things happen. Yeah, they do. You know, I, I think that one of the points I, I was just thinking about this, you know, during the break was that the, the, the irony is that we have created this culture, this society where pretty much sex is everywhere, right? It's, it's, yeah. it, it, it's everywhere. And yet in our most intimate relationships, it's very, very difficult to, to discuss and to talk about, you know, what our needs are and what our desires are. And I agree that in the beginning, sex almost feels and seems seamless, right? Mm-hmm. We're having sex a lot and it's great and there's, you know, there's no problem and we're compatible and somewhere along the line, right, 18 months in or what have you, um, it, it starts to take a little bit of a nosedive or it shifts and life takes over. And we, we get out of that fog. And next thing you know, it's um, it's becoming a little bit more difficult, right? Now we're, why aren't we having sex as often? And, um, and so, uh, you know, p- people really start to worry about that. And it's very difficult for them to, to start to talk about that. And then what happens is, you know, they, um, you know, where it was once so easy, now it becomes a little more difficult and yeah. complicated. And, and some of the, and, and they don't really talk about it sometimes. They have to talk around it. Mm. So they might have arguments about something else. Yeah. And then we, well, yeah, or yeah. we just cold shoulder each other yeah. and silently steam. Um Talk about some questions. So so one of the questions I think you bring up is that's really important is um, like taboos and because uh-huh. a lot of people were raised in families where you don't talk about it. It's the untuckable right. um, and especially if religion plays a part in your life. Sure. And so so how do we so what are the questions we should be asking there to make sure that we're we're on the same page? Well, I think that, um, you know, first of all, you know, women, women by and large, generally speaking now, of course, 
you know, raised to take care of and nurture and do for other people. And then all of a sudden women are, okay, now we have to start expressing how we feel about what, what we really want. So when you're in a good place, you know, being able to have a more open dialogue about um, what can you share with your partner? What what is a little bit more difficult? Um, did your family did your family talk about sex? Was that something, or was that something that was more taboo? Or were you indoctrinated with a religion and feel that maybe you're not you're not as religious as you were before? But some of those um, apprehensions about talking about sex or saying, "Hey, I like this, or I don't like that," still makes you feel really it makes you feel very uncomfortable, and. Um, and so how can people start to create an environment where they, they can have a little bit more dialogue around that? Um, you know, when it's, it's going back to also about strength of that relationship. Are there things about sex that you can, that you can talk about? Um, can you talk about, say, the use of pornography, how you feel about that? And how, will that affect your relationship? Um, and, so people trying to find a place where they can feel a little more comfortable talking about that. And, um, you know, it's like you still go back to what, what was working before and how can we create that, that safety with people because people mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable talking about, well, I like this and, and I don't like that. And it, it, it's almost like they just want to, they want to cringe, right? They just yeah. want to hide under a blanket. And, it's, and, and then, you you get the, then you get the question, Kristen, of somebody like, so, okay, so what's, what's normal? How much is average? Yeah. And once you yeah. get into those questions, it's telling you, it's telling you something that you're, there's more you want or you're trying to validate it from an external source. I always, right. whenever anybody asks me that, I'm like, it's, it's, it's really your marriage. What, right. what do you need? But that also demands, and you know, there, you have to talk. Right. You've got to be able and to I communicate. Think, and I think that that's, that's a very common question. Like, what's normal? And I said, look, every couple has its own normal. If, 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 if what happens though is that if people are on different pages. That's where the strife comes, right? So if, if they're on the page of let's do, let's have sex twice a month, for example, or once a week, whatever, I don't really care. Um, that's fine. But then when there's a discrepancy of people's needs and wants, that's when, of course, of course, the strife comes in. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I don't know where I read the statistic or where this was about, but, um, you know, sex comprises what, like 20 or 30% of the relationship, all things being considered. But when, but when there's a problem in the relationship, sex takes a hit like 70% of the time, right? Mm, yeah. So it, it, it's the thing that, that, that gets hurt the most, uh, the quickest, I have found. Yeah, that yeah. When, when, when people, and so, of course, we know that um, uh, the, the, how, much, how, how much sex people are having is, is, is really a good barometer of what's going on in the relationship. If there's like a lot of strife there, um, then that's really going to take a hit. And so, you know, working with couples, it, 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 I think it's one of those topics that maybe you approach a little more uh, with, with trepidation or a little bit, not really trepidation, but um, a little slower with people and let them kind of warm up to um, talking about it because as a clinician, I'm sure you have found yeah. over the years that it's comfortable for us. I mean, we talk about it. Right. So, right. So we're comfortable talking about it. And they're not. Right. No, so, it's so true. It's right. so true. So we're like, well, whatever you want to talk, you know, I, I'm here, I'm listening. Yeah. And we're not, you know, judging. And they're, and they're thinking, oh, what can I say? And what are they going to think? And, and so I think as a clinician, 
it's important that we create that environment for them too. Like, that's okay. We can, this is a safe place. Yeah. Talk about you know what you need to talk about. In and in your feel good about that. In your article, eight conversations you must have before you get married. According to a marriage therapist, money was one, sex was one. Other ones were extended family, your values, um, communication or lifestyle issues, communication styles, work and life balance. One more I want to talk about um, before we before we end. We've only got a few more minutes. Is our children. Um, yeah. Because really, that's if if one of you expects children and wants uh, two or three, and the others thinking maybe one, maybe none, um, that's a really important discussion. Yes, it is because because people often feel like oh they 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 should have a family. Maybe you know maybe, maybe they're on the fence. I think another you know, and so discussing the quantity or how large of a family or why children are important for you to have. Why are you having those children? Are they for your own internal reasons, um, or are they something external? And the other, the other important thing I think to look at when you're talking about children is really taking a look at how each of those individuals in that relationship were, were raised, right? Right. And so how how did their parents raise them, and how do they feel about that? Did they think that was good? Did they think that was bad? Did they think a little bit of both? Do they want to replicate that? Um, because we're all going to come with our own stuff in these relationships, and then it's almost like this inferred expectation, unless you have a conversation about it, that, well, of course we're going to raise the children like this is how I was raised, so this is what I'm going to do. And many times I work with couples um, that have very different parenting styles, and we all know that that really affects a child when you have two parents with very different parenting styles that really can cause a lot of havoc in that child. Um, and so that I think is really important, not just the quantity and how they feel about children and why they're having children, but how they expect to raise them, Yeah, how they want to, how they want to raise them. That's so true. A really important, really important question. I mean, and even eventually to discipline and, and other things, it really, I mean, kids, they, they, they add complexity to life, but they also add the beauty to life. Well, these are great, uh, great starters for all of us, Kristen. We appreciate your time. Uh, Kristen, Dr. Kristen Davin is her name. Go look up her website, kristendavin.com, and you can find out more from of her work there, her counseling, her coaching, as well as her blog. Insight, folks, it's just communication, but we all need to learn to do it, don't we? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll uh, get you through this one day at a time. We'll be right back. So, you know, we've already finished one month in 2017. It's, it's flying by, isn't it? And so far we haven't seen a whole lot of good, uh, or have we? It depends on how you look at it because uh, Donald Trump's in. For some, they're like, not good. For others, not bad. Yeah, but his press coverage hasn't been that great. Right. The news, though, here's the, dile- here's the dilemma. Um, however you look at the year, uh, and you might already be tired of it, Caitlin Thomas is here. She's going to bring us some positivity and some hope if you're down, if you're out, because a lot of people are just depressed. Yeah. You're a little down. Your sister is leaving on an LDS mission, and you're bummed. Yeah, we dropped her off yesterday. So she's at the little training center where they have him go, and she'll be there for three weeks, and then she flies off to Ohio. Wow. So, But don't I mean, be down. You'll get to talk to her in 18 months? I mean, like, it's awesome because she's doing a great thing. But, you know, it's it's hard. No, it is, isn't it? 
because you miss you, you miss, miss them. You miss your friends, right, your camaraderie. So, but anyways, I do have some good things to talk about. What can this we year. bring us some hope? Ten things to look forward to in 2017. Cool. Here's the first one. There is some big news on the cancer fighting front. What? Apparently, new drugs are offering promising therapies that slow the progression of some types of the disease, prolonging lives without many of the nasty side effects of treatment like chemotherapy. Excellent. And Trump's working on uh, getting those costs lower. Yeah, the farm, the pharmacy drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Great. That's good up, news. So they're so and you know one step in that direction, baby steps could you know lead to a cure. Absolutely. In how many more years? So that's that's awesome. Huge. That's Huge. probably good news for a lot of families. Good news. Um, two. This is a big one. Gender equality. Yes, the gap in earnings for men and women. It will continue to narrow in coming years as more women move into the sciences and tech jobs where salaries tend to be higher. That's awesome. So you've got programs it's like... about time. You know, programs like STEM for women that are encouraging girls to go into these different fields. So that's kind of cool. Cool. Um, a, new, a new work perk... For college grads, a growing oh, work number perk. work perk. A growing number of firms plan to help pay down their workers' student debt as a way to attract and retain talent. They're going to pay down their debt. So different companies, because they can write it off, you know, on their taxes or whatever, and they're going to help pay off their new employees' student debt. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's way cool. In fact, maybe that's something you negotiate when you go to your new job. job. Mm-hmm. Hey, can you pay down my debt? Right. So that's that's really that's, that's really good cool. news for us millennials who are getting ready to graduate. Um, more good jobs at good wages. Um, there's a lot of fretting about jobs these days, but for skilled workers, the future is bright. In fact, employers find it hard to fill many jobs in fields that require sophisticated technical skills. That's cool. So along with an, with an ability to communicate effectively while leading and influencing teams of colleagues. So better jobs are going to come up, but you know, we just need to make sure that we're in school. And if these jobs are paying off student debt, that shouldn't be a problem. That's really good. Um, fewer car crashes. Car makers have high hopes for new wireless tech that prevents accidents. So in 1999, the industry got the rights to some airwaves for vehicle-to-vehicle signals, but plans went nowhere. But finally, General Motors will equip a car in 2017, and testing of the tech is revving up. That's good news. So that's kind of cool, right? You just got the good news ding. Boom. Give us more good news. Um, The magic of 5G. Blazing fast wireless service is now on the way. 5G or fifth generation wireless technology. Holy cow, because I was so frustrated with 4G. I know. But web speeds will be 10 to 100 times as fast. Wow. Enabling HD movie downloads in under five seconds. What will the charges be? Five to 100 times more? Well, yeah, they didn't say that, but I'm (laughs) sure. Something like that. Um, Good news. 5G will also help with... Um, distant remote operation of excavators or bulldozers with virtual reality goggles, um, remote healthcare with no delay connections for intricate surgery. <laughs> I don't know. They got it's a lot adding of cool up. Stuff. Okay, you, we've only got 30 more seconds. Give high us more, speed, more. High speed internet for everyone. Yes. So they're getting that all over the world. Another chance for struggling homeowners. They're working on refinancing people's Good mortgages. News. Better weather forecasts because they're going to have better technology through 5G. Yes. And food delivery from drones. Really? So you can have your burrito delivered right Right to you at the beach? On the beach, wherever you are, a drone from grocery stores. They can send drones to your house. I'm sure it's costly, but hey. I love it. So if I wanted a pizza, they could drone it right in here into the office. See, you just brought us great news. See, 2017 has a lot to look forward to. Life is good. Yes. Caitlin, thanks for bringing the joy. You know it. The crowd is cheering. Oh. They love you. They're clapping. Stop it. Stop Caitlin it. Thomas is her name, and uh, she's only, we've only got her for a few more months, then she's going out into the dark and dreary no, I'm world. I'm graduating. 
Good job. Caitlin Thomas, thanks. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger. Stick with us. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little Punxsutawney Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're in for six more weeks of winter. Get excited. Get excited, folks. In fact, uh, it's happened. Cute little punks, we call them. Cute little punks came out, saw his shadow. Apparently, we are doomed to six more weeks of winter. Have you got the time, Matt? I do. It's 7.06. Hmm. Is that accurate? 7.06. Are you on, uh, gosh. You keep bringing this What's up. What's an hour before Pacific time? Hawaii. Are you on Hawaii time? Except no. Hawaii's like two or three out. I can't remember. Alaska hmm. time? Are I feel like Alaska I've heard time? this song quite a bit. Today. You're not alone yeah. on that. Right. I love them, though. Sonny and Cher. Yeah, this reminds me of that movie Groundhog Day. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Hmm. Tell me about it. <laughs> Groundhog Day. We're living it over and over and over and over and over again. I think this is the fifth time I've started the show. It's kind of sad. Yeah. But you know what? We still have an hour, so maybe I can start it a couple more times. What's your What's your favorite line from that movie? Um, uh, Groundhog Day? I don't I don't remember lines. I just remember Ned getting punched. That was a magic moment for me. Bing. <laughs> Bing. You know, I think all of the I think the funniest parts of the movie all have to do with Ned Ryerson. I, I think Ned made the movie. Here's my favorite part from the movie. I have missed you so much. I don't know where you're headed. Can you call in sick? Uh <laughs> I got to get going. Uh, it's good to see you. Is this Bill. when he's hugging him? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> because the insurance salesman kept bothering him every time. Every time he'd wake up, he'd get out on the street. Then the insurance salesman friend guy would bug him. So one day he just decided to hug him. <laughs> Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. And the puddle. See, again, a great, a great movie because it teaches you a lesson. You don't need to step in the same puddle a million times. But how many of us have the exact same day every day, exact same mistake every time? There are there are professors that will dissect this movie and just take it from every yeah. angle possible, philosophically, yeah. spiritually, yeah. emotionally, groundhogly. Speaking of dissecting, have you ever dissected a groundhog? Yeah. Who hasn't? Biology class, ninth grade. Um, Donald Trump dissected the prime minister of um, Australia. Australia. But if you listen to the Australian side of it, he fought back. He fought a bully with a bully, he says. That's how you, that's how you beat a bully. Yeah. Um, they were discussing some uh, arrangement with some refugees that the U.S. was going to take in under the Obama administration, but now Trump's saying no because 
it could be the next Boston bomber. We don't know right, that. You don't That's what know. he said on the phone call. And the phone end, the call was supposed to go an hour. It ended in about 25 minutes. Now, here's the real issue. Mm-hmm. There are leaks happening. Yeah. Trump doesn't like leaks. No, he no likey the leaky. People say that when leaks start showing up, it's because people in the outer offices, whichever, aren't necessarily liking where things are going. And that's when things get leaked because they're either it's a cry for help or they're making people look bad or whatever. Right, but wouldn't he, Wrong. <laughs> wouldn't he, he should, he should, he should look at maybe to his inner circle. Possibly. I mean, his inner circle, one of the members of his inner circle owns a media company. Used to. Which would be easy to leak to. Yeah. They didn't have it though. Yeah. Now, the, the other side of that, there was the uh, special forces mission in Yemen the other day. Um, the leaks that have come out of that are that the Obama administration said, no, we're not going to run this mission. And then Trump came in and greenlit it. Yeah. You know, he goes, yeah, go for it. And then someone dies. And there was an eight-year-old girl on the ground born in America, an American citizen that was killed in the, in the attack. An also. Innocent. And um, well, uh, I mean, she's eight. She's eight. She's, eight. she's, eight. she's, she's innocent. Her father was yeah. the target. Right. He's running the AQAP in Yemen there. Hmm. And now there's also talk, depending which source you believe, that the military wasn't fully on board. So on again, board. leaks are coming out of there. And it's like, are we going to hunt those down too? Whatever, you know I mean, what? Trump administration may need a plumber. Yeah. They got a lot of leaking going on. Um, so we'll talk about that. We'll get to the news headlines in a bit. Plus, we have some other crazy, uh, just empty news we'll share with you from the Matt Townsend news. Also, um, it is play your ukulele day. Let's not overlook that. It's uh, hug your rodent if you're into Groundhog Day. Let it check its shadow. And we'll, of course, um, get to all that fun. Plus, we will be talking about Islamophobia. With the whole ban, the travel ban, we had a wonderful interview uh, with a guest a few uh, months ago about Islamophobia. And are we just afraid of Muslims? And apparently a percentage of us really are. And that's, I think, sad. That's tragic. So we'll be getting to that topic with a, um, a guest in a minute, plus our friends from BYU Sports Nation. They'll be joining us, telling us about their show coming up. Uh, we'll get a review from signing day, mm. get their take on that. And a preview and a preview of the game tonight. Isn't of the game tonight, tonight against Gonzaga. Tonight? Yeah. Okay. That's a big game. Number yeah, one is. Gonzaga's in town. Holy cow, it's going to get crazy. So all that fun straight ahead. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's up? So this is happening right now in uh, Washington, D.C. Democrats expected to boycott Scott Pruitt vote. He's the, supposed to be the new EPA chief. Yeah. And then that's followed up with Republicans suspend committee rules to advance vote on former Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt's confirmation as EPA administrator. Mm. So the Democrats boycott. The Republicans suspend the rules and vote for him anyways. There you go. And through he goes. Yeah. Next. They just. Just moving on. That's the neat thing is you can just change the rules. Apparently. Yeah. So we'll see. That's what we used to do as kids. We'll when, see how that goes. When we didn't get what we wanted. We changed the rules. Well, it's how you get out of freeze tag. Right. You can sit there frozen all day or you just start yeah, running around. Just suspend right. the rules. So this is a lot like oh, I, I was on timeout. I was on timeout yeah. there. <laughs> President Trump threatened uh, in a phone call with his Mexican counterpart to send U.S. troops to stop, quote, bad hombres down there. 
unless the Mexican military does more to control them, according to an excerpt of a transcript of the conversation between the two from the Associated Press. Okay. The excerpt of the call did not make clear who exactly Trump considered, quote, bad hombres, drug cartels, immigrants, or both. Nor the tone or context of the remark made last week in a phone call between the leaders. It also did not contain Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto's response. Still, the excerpt offered a rare striking look at how the new president <laughs> is conducting diplomacy behind doors. And it goes on. It goes, you aren't doing enough to stop them. I think your military is scared. Our military isn't. So I might just send them down there to take care of it. Mexico's Foreign Relations Department denies that account, saying it's based on absolute falsehoods. Okay. CNN obtained a different account. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. CNN obtained a different account, which didn't seem so confrontational. Oh, good. And good. I, like I told you before, we talked. It had to do with punctuation and like different things. Uh, you've got some less honorable hombres down yeah, there. Yeah, it sounded like tr- just how Trump kind of talks. Right. This you, way, it's like in your face. But the the, the, the yeah. CNN version was more more reserved. Do you think he ought to start taking these phone calls as his alter ego? That John so-and-so guy that he pretended to be yeah, one time? that the press agent. <laughs> Back in the 90s, yeah. <laughs> Can't you see Don, John, or Donald Trump psyching himself up as the press agent to then talk? I'm not Donald healthy. Trump. I'm yeah. Donald Trump. Donald Flump. The White House has decided to revamp the U.S. counter-extreme program, or counter-extremism program, to focus solely on Islamic extremism, according to Reuters. The news agency interviewed five sources who have reportedly been briefed on the subject. The program will no longer target any other groups, including white supremacists who have carried out shootings and bombings in the United States. Instead, the program now called Countering Violent Extremism will be changed to Countering Islamic Extremism or Countering Radical Islamic Extremism. They're still deciding on a name. The change is consistent with President Trump's rhetoric during his campaign. Uh, We all remember Dylan Roof. Who yeah. was an extremist that went into a church and killed a bunch of people? We're not going to focus on him. Just Islamic extremists. Okay. So it's different. Christian extremists, we're going to let them go. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Uh, the University of California, Berkeley on Wednesday, canceled a scheduled speech by Breitbart editor Milio Yanilopoulos. Yeah, that's a big name. Yeah, I kind of felt yeah. that. Uh, the violent protest erupted. The violence was instigated by a group of about 150 masked agitators who came onto campus and interrupted an otherwise nonviolent protest, UC Berkeley said in a statement. So they weren't UC Berkeley students. They weren't associated. They right. came in to cause problems. They were going to have this Ruffians. guy on. This guy was going to speak to a group of uh, student Republicans, and they're just going to have a speech. There were Hold- some. There were some protests, yeah. but they were they weren't violent. These other people came in and made it worse. Hold on, was that in Mexico? Were those bad hombres in no, this, Mexico, this or was, were they in Berkeley? This was in Berkeley. Oh, California. those were the bad hombres from Berkeley. Okay. Uh, fires were lit. Fire bombs were set off about six p.m. Of the nearly fifteen hundred people outside, they. Uh, the planned speech is venue. Six were treated for injuries related to the protest. Early Thursday morning, President Trump tweeted a threat to cut off federal funding to Cal Berkeley if it does not allow free speech and practice violence and practices of violence on innocent people with a different point of view. Just he's in on everything. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 and misguided because it wasn't Cal Berkeley, but he's going right. to take away their funding. Well, I also remember that everyone got down on uh, Barack Obama for being in on like Trayvon Martin shooting mm-hmm. and just don't say, just don't make comments on everything. Right. But he is. Okay. Uh, and finally, a series of inter- interviews in the New York Times. Remember Dr. Harold Bornstein? 
Does that name ring a bell? Is that Donald's doctor? Yes. He's the guy that looks like the scientist from yeah. Independence Day. Yeah. <laughs> the longtime physician of uh, President Trump revealed that the president takes a prostate-related drug to promote his hair growth. Now, I believe that was revealed in that really awesome uh, medical exam that he put. Oh, really? Okay. He, yeah. he released when he released the health records, which were just sound like something Trump wrote because it yeah. was awesome and wonderful and tremendous. Yeah, greatly. Yeah. Additionally, Bornstein said that Trump takes antibiotics for uh, rosacea. And a uh, another for elevated blood cholesterol. So here's some, okay. a lot of health issues. Now we're getting some information. Yeah. Bornstein also revealed that he suggested to Trump's secretary that, quote, I should be the White House physician. <laughs> something you want to do. In December 2015, uh, Bornstein released a statement saying, if elected, Mr. Trump can say, state unequivocally, will be the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. Minus the rosacea. The extra weight. Okay. The, the Dorito consumption, apparently. Well, he said it, so it's true. Yeah, Alternative it's facts. <laughs> Still no explanation for the color of the hair. Yeah. Because we had that story about the company that he might have been single-handedly propping up that makes men hair replacement yeah. wigs or whatever. Not wigs. Well, I'll tell you, I heard that he eats way too many carrots. Could be. And that's why his skin is so uh, orange. That's why I don't eat carrots. Yeah. You don't want to turn orange. No. That just looks funny. Um, boy, so again, how interesting the – the we're talking Islamophobia right. in a minute and yet we – We're going to change the focus of extremists in the country to specifically Islamic extremists when there's been more of a – it's better to look at all extremists. Yeah. We right. have all kinds of people in this we have country. Them from all over. And the, 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 the refocus of that group is just inside the United States. You, you brought up a good point um, last year – or last year. felt like last year. Yeah. Last hour. About the fact that of the seven countries that the ban is on against, um, they're not – none of them, no murders in the United States came from any of those seven countries. Right. But the ones that did, Saudi Arabia with 9-11, yeah. Pakistan with the San Bernardino shooting. They're not on the ban. They could be, though, because it's an ongoing well, we're situation. we're testing it, right. Yeah, they're going to load test. more in there. It's a pretest. Yeah. So really, you got to listen up to our next guest because we're, we're probably too afraid of Muslims, right? It's – we're afraid. We, they're human beings, over the weekend, I, I saw an interview with uh, with a Muslim who was traveling, and he said it was great. You walked into the airport, everyone's cheering for you, right. people are giving you hugs. Granted, it was middle of the protest, but yeah, he said <laughs> so, it was awesome. <laughs> so it sounds like they're all jumping on the bandwagon. Again. You're back at that. You're back at that. You're going – the crowd's getting rough. It's like a Cal Berkeley crowd. All of a sudden, the agitators are going to make it worse. We don't need firebombs in the studio. No, we don't. We do not. So stick with us. We will take a break. When we come back, we'll be replaying an interview we did with Greg Enriquez um, about a unified theory of psychology. And, And it really is about how we get together and what our beliefs are about others. Are you afraid of Muslims? Do you do you do you have that Islamophobia? Are we afraid of religious people? Stick with us, folks. The Matt Townsend Show, helping us be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It is a good time to reflect on the brotherhood of man and be aware uh, and of the discouraging tendencies that, that some of us have without even knowing it. That we may have to another religious group, another um, you know, another uh, ethnic group. There's just prejudice; it can happen. And so today we've asked Dr. Greg Enriquez to join us. He's the author of the new Unified Theory of Psychology and the director of the Combined Clinical uh, and School Psychology Doctoral Program at James Madison University. He joins us to discuss Islamophobia and how fear of religion is causing discrimination in our society today. He wrote a wonderful article on the subject uh, in Psychology Today that you can look up called Islamophobia Up Close. Dr. Greg Enriquez, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, thank you so much. Happy to be here. Great to have you. I mean, it really is common now where you'll you'll hear of somebody uh, saying something um, in school. A teacher in school will maybe teach something about Islam, and then all of a sudden the parents in the school are upset. Um, what's going on? Is Islamophobia real, and, and what is it? Oh, I absolutely think it's, it's real. Uh, I mean, it basically refers to the perception uh, that— enormously broad perception that Islam as a religion is a violent and dangerous uh, religion, and anything associated with it uh, could have an insidious or damaging effect. Uh, There are definitely a lot of individuals, certainly not most individuals, but a lot of individuals believe that. Um, A lot of individuals see the faith as pitted against one another Mm. and see us sort of as an emerging uh, um, you know, war of worldviews, or even more concrete war uh, of different religions, uh, and that, I think that's certainly probably true on both sides of sort of fundamentalist Islam. Folks obviously have uh, those kinds of views, and some folks here in our uh, in our country have those views, and, and we encountered this in a really direct and obvious way in our community. Yeah, talk talk about that. How you, in your article you mentioned. Um, a, like a geography teacher? Uh, yeah, so, talk about that. So here's the story, uh, and, and we were very close to this because we knew the folks involved, um, and we followed it from the beginning. Uh, so essentially, a world geography, ninth grade world geography teacher, was teaching about world religions. Um, and uh, needless to say, Islam was one of the major world religions that they covered. Um, and the teacher went outside of what the immediate curriculum uh, suggested, but in but still within the bounds of accepted curricular activities. Mm-hmm. And she pulled an activity uh, to help the students understand uh, sort of artistic calligraphy and the role it plays in Islam and how kind of complicated it can be or beautiful it can be, etc. So what she did is she pulled an exercise from a world religion book um, and, and that had a shahada, which is the statement of Islamic faith. Um, she didn't tell them what it was, but it's, if you see it, it's yeah. a calligraphy. It's, a, it's uh, just she, a million different arrows and W, just, yeah, yeah, symbols. To, to those of us that don't speak uh, the language, it just looks like a lot of uh, interesting wavy lines mm-hmm. all pulled together in sort of a calligraphy sort of way. And so she said, hey, this is a shahada. What I want you to do is appreciate sort of the artistic complexity of calligraphy. Uh, go ahead and try to copy this and see how it looks. Um, So that was the exercise. She also, in the context of this exercise, brought in some hijabs, the uh, head scarves that a lot of uh, Muslim women might wear, and encouraged uh, students to put them on and discuss a little bit about uh, where that comes from. So that was the essence of the exercise. Fairly benign. 
Uh, well, you know, I, one would think that yeah. it was fairly benign, but that wasn't what happened. Right. Uh, in our, so I live in, a, in an area, Augusta County. It's a western, southwestern community in uh, Virginia. It's a rural community, um, and, uh, you know, the, the dominant religion is sort of Baptist Christianity uh, kind of perspective, and um, a lot of folks have a conservative, socially conservative Christian value set, um, which really... Uh, adopts a sort of, there's a one, uh, I think for many of these folks, uh, they, they have a view of the world uh, that their religion is the one true one. Um, and what happened was a mom uh, heard about her son's experience in copying the Shahada and looked it up and saw that the Shahada meant uh, there is, what the Shahada actually translates into is there's one true God, Allah, and uh, Muhammad is his messenger. Hmm. Um, and so the uh, the rea- reaction uh, from the individual was that oh my gosh my son has now engaged in an activity that is in a direct violation uh, of her faith uh, she interpreted uh, this as sort of a, a sneaky way to indoctrinate the children she interpreted uh, her belief system which in my opinion is very rigid and concrete um, was that if her son were to write this out, uh, even though he didn't know what it meant or whatever, this was a way uh, of of bringing individuals closer uh, to Islam in a faith sort of way, uh, and that for her then triggered that this was a, a form of evil indoctrination that was completely at odds with the mission of the school. Wow. Uh, and that then she then started posting uh, on Facebook and said this is a – a very dangerous thing. This is something that we should all be worried about our children. This goes against my Christian faith. And there was then an enormous, initially, there was a lot of local community support um, for this uh, opinion uh, about what this meant. Uh, And so there was originally then a swell of concern. Uh, There was a lot of backlash against the teacher uh, who was engaged in this. Um, and then there was a lot of Facebook posts. I happen to know about it because my daughter is friends with the uh, daughter of the this woman, so I actually knew. Uh, yeah, you knew my of wife, her. Yeah, knew, my my wife knew her personally, and I knew of what was going on. I got involved uh, on Facebook and was sharing my opinion that no, uh, especially, especially if you know the teacher in the background, the idea that she's indoctrinating. Uh, you know, the woman has is not of the Islamic faith, so the idea that she was trying to convince students to uh, leave their faith and become Muslim is just beyond right. uh, the stretch of any imagination. Well, especially uh, when you think of the the entire whole of what she had taught for the year. Right. This I mean, was one so percent mm-hmm. of the activity. Right. No, it's a it's a world geography class. Right. You want to learn about people uh, right. across the world and all their different faiths. Uh, and, and colors and uh, ways of being, and, and this was a, a way of doing that. But it, it really touched a nerve uh, on some folks um, who I think have a fairly, uh, well, at least in my opinion, a fairly narrow version of what religion. But you think uh, that's what you think. One of the things you think is that it's the religious side of this that's so uh, fear-invoking, I guess. Well, I, I, yeah, is that uh, what I you would think? say so. Uh, I mean, versus just like, oh, it's a, you know, they're here to kill us. But it's it really is that they have this belief that they'll take over my religion. 
Yes, I think that the certainly that was definitely the primary theme of the concern was this issue of indoctrination and the threat of religious beliefs and the kind of clash of worldviews and that there is one truth, uh, that the Christian truth, and then there's this other alien uh, truth that, that she was okay with having her students learn about. Um, but for her, the, you know, the writing of the Shahada in calligraphy was, uh, you know, really sort of a concrete spiritual act. And yeah. so for her version of what God meant was that if you write this, even if you don't want to me- what it, know what it means, you're engaging in sort of the clash of worldviews and you are distancing yourself from Christ. Um, in fact, when she often, when she would write out what the Shahada means, she would follow it with, Lord, forgive me uh, for typing these words. Mm. Um, and because as if the Lord wouldn't be able to decipher yeah. whether you were quoting somebody or what right. was in your heart, you know, that kind of thing. Well, and it seems like if if, uh, if somebody from um, the extreme um, Islamic state that is so anti uh, the Christian religion, if they saw the Shahada that these children had written, they would have seen it as blasphemy and that they were ruining this beautiful Shahada. I mean, they could have just been just as offended on the other side. Of course. Yeah. And yet, and yet, it was just an exercise to increase understanding. Right. And that that's where, that's why I think it warrants the label Islamophobia. It was such a, you know, for the obvious intent for those of us who didn't get uh, sort of sucked up into the ideology of of, it, of what it meant, and I think in a sort of errant way. Um, yeah, it was simply an obvious uh, exercise in learning about the world huh. um, that was then infused with all sorts of meaning uh, that I did I do think stemmed, and she certainly wrote it as such, stemmed from her what I would consider to be fairly narrow, rigid, and concrete version of uh, of a Christian faith that um, you know stirs some some. Difficulty, right? And and all of this on the hills. I don't know if you heard of the Trump, um, the Trump moment where a, a Muslim woman was silently protesting, stood up in the middle of the group, and um, her 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 dress said "Salam, I come in peace." And I think she just stood there quietly, basically, mm-hmm. and they just ran her out on a rail, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly have followed the whole Trump campaign very carefully. Um, and, uh, yes, I, I do believe that the Trump campaign is very much about anger. It's very much about fear. It's very much about sort of a nationalistic fervor. Uh, and as that uh, sort of note continues to get hit, and uh, that brings out uh, more and more individuals who are feeling very frustrated, feeling defensive, wanting to return to some pure state, um, and that's gonna, that is really going to encourage stirring up of Lots of uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim sentiment, oh. I, I definitely believe No, absolutely. So. Let's take a quick break, Greg. Um, come back and, and kind of wrap this up. I'd love you to give us some ideas when we come back about how we can create a more accepting view of other religions and not just react out of fear and create more phobias uh, about, around religion. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Greg Enriquez from James Madison University. We'll continue the discussion. He Great article on psychology today if you want to go look that up and follow his blog there. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Greg, uh, Dr. Greg Enriquez from um, James Madison University. He's the, uh, the author of A New Unified Theory of Psychology and the director of the Combined Clinical and School Psychology Doctoral Program there at James Madison. Today he's talking to us about an article he wrote on Psychology Today titled Islamophobia um, Up Close, just giving us some pretty interesting examples of how our religion uh, might spark us to be a little bit more, um, uh, I guess, what's the word, intolerant, um, more likely to act on our fears than our than our faith even. Um, and joining us, uh, as he joins us, we appreciate you coming back, Dr. Enriquez. I'd love to uh, have you just talk to us about what we can do as the psychologist in you. What can we do to not get so fearful and instead actually just maybe try to live our religion more more holy? That's a great that's a great question. Um, and I think the the first thing to do about that is to kind of think about uh, you know what you I, the way I frame religion, I'll put it this way, um, I frame human beliefs in terms of what are called justification systems. Hmm. Uh, and that, is, that means that um, we don't adopt our beliefs about the world and ourselves randomly. We functionally organize them uh, so that they provide us meaning-making and they legitimize um, our position in the world. Uh, so our beliefs really function as systems of justification. Um, and I think it's really important to be aware of a couple of different things. It, first, kind of getting your head around the use of the term. Okay, so I use my faith uh, in a way that justifies my worldview. It, it serves as a system of justification so I can make sense out of things. I can determine what is good and bad. Um, and that is, that, that's the role of beliefs and values for us. They guide us in those, in those ways. And so if you understand them as justification systems, then you can start to understand why, at least potentially, they could, they could really clash, uh, because it depends on how you use them and what level of abstraction or the way in which you relate to your justification system. So for individuals who got activated by this particular event we were talking about, they had a very concrete um, and literal version, uh, and I think also misguided if you've studied, but, but for their version, they're justified. Their Christian God, it's clear. Um, they, he, she knows exactly what he wants her to do in her own mind. She interprets bio- biblical quotes in a very literal fashion. Um, and so she has what I would consider to be a fundamentalist justification system, which is sort of a very literal uh, interpretation. And on that grounds... Um, Really, from her perspective, what we are seeing here is a clash of world views. There's a threat, a fundamental threat um, to the way the world works. And she would argue she is being a good person. She's right. identifying truth in a particular kind of way. So her justification system is that we are under threat. The devil has um, created misguided uh, messages in the world of Muhammad or in evolution. And she's trying to do... Uh, the good and moral thing by staying close to God, um, by reading very clearly and literally what uh, her interpretation uh, of God is. Is there a way? Is there a way to broaden the, the those views of another? Yeah, like, well, yeah, I, how do you well, I do think that? Education is absolutely essential because once you broaden your view and begin to wonder, what I would try to educate people on is: listen, everyone is born into a cultural system uh, where they are given 
justification systems. Uh, you know, one of the first things I taught my daughter uh, is that, yeah, here, uh, 80 or 90 percent of the people in south or southwestern Virginia are – the kids are, are all Christian. Why are the kids in Saudi Arabia uh, all Muslim? It's because the justification systems are handed down. Hmm. Um, and, and thinking about your belief systems in terms of justification, I think, can give people kind of a perspective on them. So it allows them to sort of step outside their own uh, position in the world and wonder, huh, okay, so Islam is their justification system. Christianity is mine. Where do these things come from? What is their history? H- how, does, how do we understand all the justification systems that humans have built over the world? And really, you know, my opinion is, is that actually if you look carefully about how people have built justification systems, a narrow, fundamentalist, concrete version of any particular system begins to get very weak uh, when you compare it and contrast it to all the other justification systems that are around. Yeah. Um, and so you realize that, huh, these are narratives that people have built, and they may have deep truths to them, but it is just a gross oversimplification to say that you can pick up the Bible, read it line for line, and literally know exactly what is true, and know what isn't true, and know that the Koran or um, whatever other texts have not to be true, because I now know what my truth is. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, what you have is your justification system, and actually all throughout the history of humanity, people have been building them, and they look very, very different <laughs> across a wide variety of different contexts. And then you compare it, though, too, it seems like, to the paradox of it, where there's the law that has to be lived, but there's also a spirit of it. There's, exactly. there's, and, and it's so selective in its reasoning, I guess, because you're only, reason, you're only you know, using it to justify harsh, harsh treatment, not loving treatment. You know, harsh right, rejection, right. not loving acceptance. That certainly would be my point. And, yeah. and, and certainly, I, you know, often the person won't experience, from the other perspective, won't have that experience. They'll say they're trying to be loving. Uh, they're trying to follow it a particular way. But, you know, to me, what I try to help people do is once you take a step back, you sort of, in my estimation, you sort of have to commit to the idea that there are multiple justification systems uh, around that probably have uh, shed, you know, shades of truth to them, uh, but the diversity of them is something that we absolutely need to understand before we clamp down on any particular mm. version. And I think if you have that attitude, then it's a one that's much more open and curious rather than rigid and defensive when we encounter other beliefs. Yeah. Um, so that I can go out and say, oh, okay, so what do Muslims believe about the world, right? Oh, okay, they believe in Muhammad, and they're Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims, and they have their idea about who's the rightful now, heritage, about, well, you know, Muhammad's true message, oh, and that's kind of interesting. That's kind of like Protestants versus Catholics. Right. Um, and, and I can, and Mormons, and I can understand, um, you know, those histories and traditions and look for parallels and, and all of that. But um, openness versus rigidness. Exactly. Yeah, it, no. The recognition totally. that, um, you know, our justification system, I often make the point that it's sort of like, uh, uh, you know, our, we live in them like fish live in water. They're not even, a, we're not even aware of them. That's right. Um, uh, you know, they just, we take them for granted. Actually, research shows that they influence us on an explicit level, meaning what we can actually report. They also deeply influence at what's called an implicit level, stuff we're not even conscious of. Mm. So a lot of people have just primitive emotional associations to things like Islam is bad and dangerous and right. threat. And then we develop conscious rationales for why we're 
scared of that. So, and we have real fears, you know, underlying it all. Like, I mean, our fight or flight kicks in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and believe me, obviously, there's a lot going on in the world that says there's some legitimacy. I mean, obviously, San Bernardino happens, the Paris attack happens, yeah. the, you know, 9 11 happened. I mean, there are oh. real um, threats, uh, no doubt, uh, from fundamental uh, Islamic jihad. Uh, elements in the world. Greg, we gotta, we're going to have to have you back. This is a huge issue, and I think we need uh, more of your insight on it. We've, we're, at, we're up against a hard break, but okay. we do appreciate you being with us. Dr. Greg Henriquez from uh, James uh, Madison University. We're going to have him back to continue this, oh, this broadening. I don't know. We just got to be more open-minded to things. You don't have to be open-minded you know, in ignorance, but you also don't want to be closed-minded in ignorance either. Anyway, interesting stuff. Dr. Greg Henriquez, we appreciate you. We'll take a break, come back, visit our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. Uh, They're getting ready for their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. We'll find out what's going to be going on there. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends of the Matt Townsend Show. That is the Pennsylvania Poco, which means we're going down to BYU Sports Nation to visit our good brethren, Spencer and Jerem. How are you, gentlemen? Rise and shine. It's <laughs> cold out there. Get, Get your, your booties on. Get your booties, Ned Ryerson. <laughs> you guys have hit it. The best movie of all time. One of oh, them. good. One of them. Do you love it or what? It's the greatest movie about this holiday ever. Don't you think? Hey, by the way, you heard that it's going to be six more weeks of winter. That crazy little rascal, Punxsutawney. Well, it depends where you live, I guess. Bang! (laughs) Bang! Um, It does depend. Hey, uh, guys, you made it through yesterday. That was a big day. Mm -hmm. That's a fun day. That might be my favorite day all year. I enjoy it quite a bit. Is it really? Yeah, I love it. We have uh, great coverage of it, great access, and uh, we had two hours of shows, and... We were live uh, in the morning, and then in the afternoon we had uh, Kalani Satake and Ty Demmer and Elias Tuyaki on our uh, sixth Eastern edition of the show. Money. So that was awesome. Yeah. It's great, and that's it's about the future, and it's, it's funny because we talk a lot about the high school guys, right? Yeah. But the missionaries and the mid-year editions, some of which are transfers, those guys are actually going to compete and could play this year a little bit more than those high school guys, many of which go on a mission first. You know, but but it's about now and the future, and it's football in February. I went through the roster, or the the list of signees for BYU, and then I I went in and watched the videos, and I got to hear your wonderful voice, Jerem. Oh you, yeah, you had voiced a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it's a bigger team. These are bigger. This seems bigger. They seem taller. It Those seems like some, we got some meat. Those are some bigger dudes. BYU went after defensive linemen too. Yeah, um, a lot of lot of. <laughs> These guys are some of these guys are seventeen and they're six four three hundred pounds. Oh. One guy was six four three fifty. Can Hawaii. you believe that? Apparently, could three sixty dunk. But I mean, yeah, Kalani Sataki did uh, and that coaching staff did a really nice job of uh, getting a good group uh, because BYU realizes they're playing these tough schedules, so they're trying to get guys that can handle that. Yeah, they they need depth. Yeah, they need guys like us, right? No, they don't need they don't need skinny punks. <laughs> like Thank you, the three of us. Thank do. you very much, skinny punk. I am. They have hey, enough kickers. Did you guys? Uh, I know Spencer loves this because I used to call Spencer the same nickname. Uh, have you guys heard of uh, Air Mormon? Air Mormon. 
Once upon a time at Sunset Junior High, that was rel- relevant. <laughs> was that relevant? Life. That's what they're calling Kyle Collinsworth now, apparently. Well, one tweet, yeah. Yeah, one tweet. You know, Air Mormon. He that needs, was a fantastic dunk. He, that that looked great. great. He needs a few more dunks before that's really going to catch him. If he could do two, I bet he'd, yeah, it would stick. <laughs> you know, he's the flying Mormon. He's triple double king. Yeah. He was one assist shy. Oh. Point. One point shy of a triple double. Oh, one right. something is, yeah, yeah whatever it is. That's right. huge. Hey, um, is there anything going on tonight? I mean, it seems like I've got a lot of time tonight. Ball night! <laughs> number one Gonzaga in the house. BYU's never hosted the number one team in the country. Here we go. It's pretty crazy. BYU's played ball for a long time. Yeah. Um, so tonight, Gonzaga comes into the Marriott Center. Nick Emery is sick. Uh, Dave Rose will join us in studio. Steve Cleveland, the former, uh, the, the guy that hired Dave Rose to be his assistant, analyst for us, he'll join us as well. So we'll cover every angle of that. Plus, we'll have a camera live outside at the uh, in the rock line. People are intense in, like, 20-degree weather, man. Sellout expected, obviously, Woo! because history is made tonight. History's made tonight. Whether BYU wins or not, it's a historic history. night at the Marriott yeah. Center. What do you yep. think? Is there going to be a miracle? Is, is, are you feeling the miracle tonight? Speaking of miracle. It's funny that you would bring up the word miracle because uh, I just watched the speech from Herb Brooks, played by Kurt Russell, in uh, Miracle, 2004 oh, Disney movie classic, neat. that he gives to Team USA before they take on the Soviets. Mm-hmm. If I were to give BYU a speech tonight, it would be something close to that. That's good. Yeah. Gonzaga's really good. Um, I know. They're number one. Vegas, says, you, you yeah, know. Vegas has the line at eight and a half, which is interesting. Single-digit game. Uh, Dave Rose, when he's played top ten teams in the Merritt Center, single-digit games. They've been competitive games really i'm i'm interested to see if this one will be uh that close as well because this gonzaga team this is the in my opinion the best team they've ever fielded this is a final four type of team and byu's got some talent as well the difference in this game could be the merit center could be the crowd could be yeah effort could be something down the stretch byu had a less talented team four years ago playing second ranked gonzaga in the merit center was down three and had a three-point look to tie with under a minute to go in that game. It was a five-point loss. Mm. I'm hoping BYU can bring that kind of effort tonight. That is, oh boy. Okay, uh, I know the difference, let me just tell you, is that there's no Della Vadova. Well, he plays for St. Mary's, thank goodness. So. But, but oh, he does? But it yeah. did. He, but it's yeah. true. Did. He's yeah. not. So, I mean, let's, let's get yeah. yeah, it's all good. That was the, yeah, that was the same season as the aforementioned five-point game comes back. <sighs> You guys. Those are tough losses. Though. Well, you got, you're going to have a great show, so you'll be We're talking stoked. all about that. And uh, happy uh, Groundhog Day. Thank you. May the force be with both of you. Ned? <laughs> Ned, Ned Ryerson? <laughs> Bang! <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Knock them dead. Go have a great show. Wax on, wax off. Then put your little hand in mine. There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, oh boy, have we got a great show lined up for you today. You know, it's February 2nd, and you know what that means. It's Groundhog Day. Cute little Punxsutawney Phil will be making his appearance and signaling whether we're in for six more weeks of winter. Get excited. Yeah, that's, I mean, we've got a great show. So much to talk about. So much to get done today. Wait, it's 7 o'clock again? <sighs> yeah. Man, I just feel like we're in a, an eternal loop here. Yeah, it's how come I'm doing that right now? Why are we doing this right now? Well, I thought it's 7 o'clock. 
it felt like it. And then I just got started and reintroduced the show. It's um, so it, it just may, keeps happening. It may it's have like, seemed like you sp- you just spoke with BYU Sports Nation, but I think that was actually yesterday. No, I don't know because they're playing the game today. I, hmm. That was weird. It's like the twelfth time it's happened. I can't figure it out. I think it's Groundhog Day all over again, but it's almost over, folks. Hey, uh, are you ready for um, Valentine's Day? Jeffrey, have you got the queen a gift yet? I mean, I know you're coming to my date night. Uh, TBD. Um, (laughs) TBD? Well, I just thought maybe it would be nice to go to Costco and get some lobster tail so we're not spending all the money in a restaurant to do it. Oh, really? That's um, romantic? But then I remembered that my wife's pregnant, and I don't know if you're supposed to do seafood I when you're pregnant. No, I probably wouldn't do that. In fact, if mm. you want, you could just go get, I don't know, a little vial of mercury and just give it to her slowly. You know, a uh, <laughs> a foot rub would probably go a long way. It totally would. I got a better gift if you want to give her um, – uh, if you don't want to give her roses, because everybody gives their wife roses, right? I mean, my wife doesn't like flowers. Yeah, so she'll love this. Then the Bronx Zoo is offering the chance uh, to name one of its Madagascar hicking cockroaches in honor of someone for Valentine's Day. So what you can do for ten dollars, you get uh, your your spouse will get they'll receive in the e- uh, via email a certificate telling them of the insects from the world's largest roach species. And that the roach has been named for them. And then what will be great is that the zoo, one of their roaches, will actually just learn their name, which is your name. And um, it's what, – what more can you offer? You know, nothing says I love you like I just saw this roach and it reminded me of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you know, sneaking out in the middle of the night, that scurrying along the, you know, the floor of the kitchen, hiding under the fridge. Eating all the food. I was thinking of you, honey. And by the way, if you want, if you want to give a little higher donation, they'll send along some chocolates filled with roaches, roach chocolate, uh, and um, a plush toy. You know, like of a, a Madagascar hissing cockroach, like stuffed animal. It's really romantic. So think out of the box, and then that way too, you also get to give some money to Wildlife Conservation Society, which you know. They always would need some money. So you're, you're not only giving back to the world, you're giving a, a gift to your spouse that apparently will never die. You know, maybe I need to talk to her a little bit more about Valentine's Day, but I just don't know how I can broach the subject. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, by the way, if, if it goes over really well, you might get lucky and go to a Roach Hotel. Roach Motel. You know, you're right. I think that is one way that I could approach it. Okay, let's end that. That went weird. Boy, the crowd, our, our audience today, man, they are, whew, it's like they're sitting right on top of you. The intensity. Hey, as you know, we always like to end the show with a hero story. Our hero uh, today our donors that uh, unite nationwide to pay off a kid's school lunch debt. Listen to this. Ashley C. Ford felt driven to act by a sad fact of life that in the nation's school cafeterias, kids with unpaid lunch accounts are often embarrassed with a substitute meal of a cold cheese sandwich and a carton of milk. 
Ford, a New York City rider, appealed to her 66,000 Twitter followers with a solution. A cool thing you can do today, she wrote, is to try to find out which of your local schools have kids with overdue lunch accounts and pay them off. In the nearly two months since that date... When she wrote that, people around the country have been inspired to donate thousands of dollars to erase debts owed by parents that can follow kids throughout their school careers. In Minnesota, an online fundraising effort has paid almost $100,000 in lunch debt, 28000 in St. Paul's alone. Donors um, also erased $6,000 of debt in Topeka, Kansas, 2000 in Bellevue, Washington, 1200 in Delaware, and $900 in Pennsylvania. Those are all heroes, folks. You see that power? You have a little empathy for a child that's being embarrassed because of their parents' uh, school debt, man alive. And then you step in and save, save them. That's what heroes are all about. You can be one. We all can. We'll talk again tomorrow to help you see the good in the world and be the good in the world. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. And let's look after each other.